This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. It's Friday. Yes! You made it, folks. Happy Friday to you. And uh, boy, oh boy, those in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, you've, you're kind of making it. You're almost halfway there. Unbelievable. Hurricane Matthew slowly just lumbering up the east, uh, the east coast there. It is going, what, 10 miles an hour? Um, but uh, now I think downgraded to a Hurricane 3. Which, uh, I don't know if that feels much like a downgrading, but again, our prayers go out with you. 260 plus people have died already in the Caribbean, so we just hope you're taking care of yourself. As uh, storm surge in Jacksonville's due to come in, um, and man, about I think about uh, 11 feet of storm surge coming in 15 miles inland, so be careful. Aren't there about 200 people... More that are dead now than there were yesterday. It just keeps rising. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it is such a slow-moving storm. Um, CNN says it's stalking the Florida coast. Extremely dangerous right now. Uh, it's not. It hasn't come uh, on land, which would probably wear it out, tired it out. It's just kind of offshore, slowly working its way north. And uh, it's it's still like 10 hours away from from Jacksonville even. And so it'll then kind of just sit in that little curve right there, and uh, Georgia will take a hit, South Carolina, all the way up into North Carolina, they believe. Unbelievable stuff. But the bet, honestly, if there's any good news about a hurricane in the southeast, it's that we don't have a lot of news on Trump. That is great news. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that it was named Matthew. Other than that. No, that, I think it's actually ruining my name. Yeah. Not to be rude. I mean, I don't have anything against hurricanes. I if if you want to be a hurricane, be a hurricane. But I don't want to be a hurricane. Yeah, I'd rather be a tropical storm myself. What I don't want is, I mean, what I do like is that Donald. We're not talking Donald. We actually do have a Donald Trump clip. Yeah, in fact, about Hurricane. We'll Matthew. come back and we'll give you a Donald's uh, take on Hurricane Matthew because it's 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 huge. We'll get into all of that fun. Plus, we've got an an interesting topic um, that came out of a New York Times article about why did we stop teaching political history? You know, did you I had a political history professor at the University of Utah that was the it was the most incredible experience I've ever had. Really? Jeez, Jeff. Wake up, pal. Hey. Hey. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Political history, you know, it's not boring, but is it possible that because we have not been teaching political history like we used to, that we are not teaching uh, the world and our country uh, how to create civic uh, civic um, accord, civic connection, civic agreement? Do we not know how to talk because we've never learned that you can actually compromise? which our history was full of. And now we're just full of it, hypothetically. 
Hey, um, so we'll get to that. A great guest coming up uh, to talk about that article. Plus, um, lots of interesting news, some of which you might even need. And hurricane updates as we go through the morning as well. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's coming on, uh, the re- or going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? President Barack Obama's approval rating stands at 55% in a new CNN ORC poll, the highest mark of his second term and matching his best at any time since his first year in office. The new rating outpaces his previous second term high, reached just after a Democratic convention that extolled the successes of his presidency by one point and hits a level he's reached just twice since the end of his first year in office, in January 2013, just before his second inauguration, and in January 2011. The Democratic National Committee will blitz the swing states with prominent Democrats to help Hillary Clinton make her case in the final month of the 2016 campaign, according to a preview of the plan shared with CNN. To deliver what the DNC is billing as its closing argument of the 2016 election, it will launch a surrogate-led bus tour through more than 20 states. It will begin Sunday in St. Louis, the site of the highly anticipated second debate between Clinton and Donald Trump. Florida Governor Rick Scott says he will not extend deadline for voter registration in the state despite concerns over the impact of Hurricane Matthew. The Republican governor told reporters Thursday he doesn't intend to make changes saying people have had time to register. Hillary Clinton's campaign earlier Thursday had called on Florida officials to extend the state's Tuesday voter registration deadline because of Hurricane Matthew's potential disruption of late signups. Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook told reporters Thursday, the one thing that we are hoping and expecting is that officials in Florida will adapt deadlines to account for the storm. The deadline is October 11th and it is not currently being extended. And finally, here is your great story about Donald Trump. Um, I don't know what you guys are going to talk about. Well, we'll surprise you. But maybe it's the same story because it's really great. Okay. So Donald Trump made a visit to a classroom of first graders at a Christian school in Nevada on Wednesday, where the pupils proved once again, kids say the darndest things. <laughs> um, so it was International Christian Academy in Las Vegas. When he entered the classroom, he was greeted with a loud greeting. Uh, not everyone was so thrilled, though. One little girl can on the video heard me saying over and over, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. Another child remarks on Trump's famous hair to a friend saying, see, I told you his hair wasn't orange. <laughs> he was presented with a gift from another student who approached him shyly. He, he gave the girl a quick hug, after which she retreated to her desk. <laughs> and, you know, I have to be honest, it actually was kind of cute. I bet it was. When he's not all big and huffy and puffy like he yeah. usually is, he's actually kind of a big teddy bear. Are you saying so, he's huffy and puffy? Uh, yes, he, he can huff and puff and blow oh, everyone down. Blow the house down. Yes. That is, you know what? I think if you put, did you see Hillary Clinton um, holding up a child when she had pneumonia? Or not holding her up, but talking to that little girl when she had pneumonia? No. That was cute. No, I missed it. Almost, missed that it one. made her seem like she wasn't terminally ill. Yeah. I should have, I should find that clip. She's and not watch it. terminally ill. Let's make that clear. <laughs> wow, Sadie, thanks for humanizing Donald Trump. Absolutely. I mean, really, you put, isn't that what they say, Jeff, that you, you, you should never, actors don't like to work with kids? Or like animals, kids, animals, or Donald Trump. <laughs> um, I can only imagine that the things that were coming out of their mouths as they met with him. It's just all the things that their parents told yeah. them about Donald Trump. He's not an oompa loompa. I was just going to say were that. You? Wow. Thank you. We're on the same page. We're here all day. We're, we, we can. We are so tight, Jeff. We finish each other's sentences. We're like a married couple. 
Let's let's do this. Let's get to uh, some hurricane notices here. Um, uh, urgent message. This is the message that the Weather Channel gave for those that were in the path of Hurricane Matthew. I'm Senior Hurricane Specialist Brian Norcross, and I want to talk to my friends in Florida. Today, on behalf of the Weather Channel, I have a special message about the threat from Hurricane Matthew. This is like no storm in the record books. We are concerned about reports of people deciding to stay in areas under mandatory evacuation orders. This is a mistake. This is not hype. This is not hyperbole. And I am not kidding. I cannot overstate the danger of this storm. Do not assume you can survive if you choose to stay. There will be overwhelming damage and likely a heartbreaking loss of life. Based on everything we know, Matthew will make history. Scary. Totally scary. I, um, I love the Weather Channel. That's what I watched last night. I didn't watch CNN. I didn't watch MSNBC. Didn't watch Fox News Weather Channel. Because they don't, they break all the rules in broadcasting. So did they break any rules right there, just telling oh, it how it is? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're all standing. Everyone was, had the shot of a guy standing or a gal standing in the storm having, you know, rain running down their raincoat. But these guys, they just, they just are a bunch of scientists, right, that are on the air. They're not, they're not like perfectly quaffed and beautiful and their hair is not perfect and they're not – but they're brilliant and you know they're brilliant. <laughs> And you compare their work to every other station, you think, yeah, the other stations don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, that is the most honest news you're going to get. I love like, This is not a joke. We're not kidding. If you think you're going to be okay, think again. Get out now. People are going to die and get out now. And then it's just every minute because you know how – I don't know if you watched last night. They just show the same image of the hurricane spinning and every – you know, every station. But, you know, the guy that's doing the, the hosting of that hour, he's only been, you know, he's only anchored through one hurricane in his life. And nobody's I – and mean, very few of them have ever lived one. But these the, – the meteorologists at uh, the Weather Channel, these guys, this is the big day. This is the Super Bowl. So if you need to and you just want some fun and you just want to see pros at work – that don't necessarily care about how their hair looks, that they don't care about any of that, Weather Channel. So don't watch the debate. Don't watch the football game. Mm-hmm. Don't watch the nope. playoffs. Weather Channel. I love them. I think we need more stations that are specialized like that for for the news. Don't don't we have like 100 of them? Well, a lot of them, though, they, they try to do everything. You just need a Weather Channel. You need You need a channel simply for... You, you, you know what you need? You need a business channel. The channel that only does business. Don't, don't, don't like, we have one of those? Yeah, like CNBC maybe. Yeah. Maybe Fox Business. You need a channel just like that. Okay, but I mean there are a myriad need, of others. You know, all like, you need is a station that just does politics. Just one – just politics. So you're saying we don't have one of those? I, <laughs> we do. But see, none of them are quite like the Weather Channel. The rest of them – I don't know. It's almost like they still care about ratings, not quality data. Did you hear uh, about the great um, fact checkers for this upcoming debate? They're saying if we're not going to we're not going to fact check. If Donald Trump doesn't care about truth, we're not going to fact check. So unless Donald is going to agree that facts matter, there will be no fact checking. Right. 
Exactly. That's the problem. The problem is he probably won't care. And I'm, I, we, we always sound like, I guess, like we're beating up on Donald, but he's the only one that says stuff. Hillary might be very much the same way. She just has to not say anything and let him run his mouth. Let him just keep going. So the fact checkers are, we're done. We're not, we're not even going to be involved in this if we can't get a commitment from Donald. And I think your little uh, audio drop there was very accurate. Do you think he's going to phone it in this weekend or do you think he's going to come prepared this time? I think he's going to come as prepared as Donald can be. And I think what that means, he won't know any more facts. He won't know any more. He won't, he won't have the data, but he's going to start turning it back on her, turning it mm. back on her. So I think you're going to see him starting not just to have to answer her questions, but throwing questions back at her. What about this? What about this? What about this? He's going to have to do that. I think if he's if he's going to phone it in, he ought to really phone it in. Just go all out on the phoning it in. You know, he ought to stand up there with a taco bowl and just go to town on it. You know, he ought to be tweeting. On the other hand, he he should just phone it in all the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he probably would do a better debate on Twitter. It would be so much more interesting and his numbers would probably improve. Mm. It's only about a month left. And it's interesting. Second debate is this Sunday night. Get ready. Popcorn. Get it all ready. And then there's only one more debate, folks. Bada boom, bada bing. This thing. (coughs) You all right? (coughs) Ah. (coughs) You said there were how many more? Uh, Two more debates. (sighs) By the way, today we didn't mention it is uh, bathtub day. Get in the tub. Hold your ducky in your lap. Sadie's doing jazz hands or whatever those are. She's dancing. In the water from the tap. It's bathtub day, folks. If you haven't taken a bath, I don't know the last time I took a bath. I'm a shower guy. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. As long as you're showering. The uh, introduction of the bathtub was in England in 1828. That's amazing. How many babies did we lose in in the 1800s? I don't know. Because they got all they all got thrown out with the bathwater, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. Happy bathtub day. Might be the day that you think I'm gonna take a bath today. You? No. One. One might think that. Uh we did want to give you the quote of Donald Trump talking about the hurricane because um you know, it's pressworthy. Whether I want to send our thoughts, our hearts uh, are, are with all of the people and prayers to the millions in the path of what's now known as Hurricane Matthew. It looks like it's a big one and it's going to be a bad one, it looks like. Southeast Florida has taken the brunt. We have a lot of friends in Florida, a lot of, a lot of buildings, a lot of investments in Florida, a lot of great employees in Florida. To all of my friends in Florida, please know that we are praying for you and everyone in the, the path you got to take care of yourself. You've got to get out of the area. There you have it. That's probably the most serious you'll ever hear of Donald Trump. And you know what else happened? It sounded like he started getting into his his story because it kind of always turns back to him. We have a lot of friends there. I have a lot of property there, a lot of investments there. And you could hear his brain saying, this might be a good time to talk about Mar-a-Lago, my properties, my wealth, my steaks, my vodka, my... 
and you heard him just pull it right back. At least he didn't take credit for the hurricane, though. <laughs> yeah. Give him time. Give him time. Uh, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we will be getting um, into the wonderful topic, I think, of why, why is there so much contention today? Why do our politicians not know how to compromise? Perhaps it's because we don't teach political history anymore. We don't teach about the great debates and the great, uh, truly, political leaders we've had in the past that could forge a compromise, that could create some win-wins in this organi- in this uh, great country. And so we'll be talking with uh, an expert, True Blue. Help us walk through that. Stick with us, helping you become better leaders right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We learn from the past, but what if we don't ever actually do that? You know, we think we do, don't we? You just, you've lived, so you're automatically going to learn, right? The problem is um, political history was once a central part of our country's education system. You remember ever taking civics class or history and political history classes? I remember in my college experience, had one of the great professors at uh, the University of Utah and incredible things I learned. And by the way, my first time fully experiencing a very full-on liberal-minded, almost extreme liberal-minded human being. But he stretched my brain in a way that uh, it had never been stretched. And he did it through political history. But it's kind of disappearing. And we uh, we read a wonderful article, Why Did We Stop Teaching Political History?, that we found, I believe, it in the New York Times, and it's by our next guest. He co-authored it. Uh, Kenneth Osgood is a, a professor of um, political history at Colorado School of Mines, director of the McBride Honors Program in Public Affairs. He received his Ph.D. from the University of California, and we're honored to have you on the show. Dr. Osgood, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's a great pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me to talk about this great topic. What is happening? The numbers that you cite in this article are it's 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 not healthy. Um, what it, what has happened to political history in our academic endeavors? Well, as you as you mentioned in the intro there, that there was a time when political history was pretty much the only kind of history, and right. uh, you know, for for much of the founding of the historical profession it was all the goings ons of the of the leaders and the formation of democracy and the, how how laws were made and legislation and things of that nature and and now we're at a situation where uh, you can go to many universities across the country and not even have a choice of a course that focuses on political history so, and sort of making matters worse or sort of fueling that has been a, a total decline in the number of jobs for political historians. We looked at the uh, job ads on a leading website for hiring historians uh, over the past 10 years, uh, and there was on average about one or two jobs a year out of the hundreds of universities for uh, historians who specialize in the political history of the United States. What that means is if you're uh, if you're someone who aspires to be a university professor pursuing your Ph.D., uh, you would be committing professional suicide <laughs> to study the history of American politics as your major focal point of study. Oh, true. huh? Hmm. 
So, so we we wrote this op-ed because we've been we've been observing this trend for a long time. It's been going on since uh, it's been sort of underway since the 1960s, and I can talk about that a little bit. But we've been observing this trend, and we're we're worried not just about um, sort of the lack of jobs, you know, that's sort of a parochial concern, but really about what the broader impact is. Is that if we if we're not teaching it on college campuses, that means our teachers aren't, aren't getting exposed. You know, our next generation of teachers aren't, aren't learning about this in depth. And it means they, in turn, are not teaching it to our young people, uh, mm. at least not with, with, with the kind of sophistication that, that our electorate needs to have. It used to be in my day, and I'm 47, that okay. if you wanted to go pre-law, if you wanted to be a journalist, if you wanted um, kind of even a, even a go get an advanced business degree – you, a lot of people would just go take a poli sci to get a poli science degree, and it was it seemed like the the perfect, well rounded, well read, learning to write, well versed experience. And I guess that has now been replaced, right? Well, um, in some ways, I mean, so political science, of course, is a, is a different field, yeah. um, and and it tends to focus more on contemporary politics, although there are. Uh, political scientists who study the past and draw on the past, but they approach the topic very differently. Um, and they often actually rely on the works of historians to kind of build their mm-hmm. theories and understanding. And so if you don't have historians who are digging through the archives and digging through the papers, um, uncovering new information, um, you're losing a, just a huge resource for beginning to understand the nation's political history. Um, I think you do see, to speak to your point, you do see um, a number of people who want to go into law and, and what have you going coming out of history departments still. And part of the reason is is because the the skills that historians teach you in terms about weighing different kinds of evidence. You know, oftentimes when you dig into the past, information is totally contradictory. So you got to make some choices about about um, what really is the truth. Um, and that kind of skill is essential for the legal profession, for example. You, um, in your article, you bring up a really interesting stat about three quarters of the universities now lack full-time teachers in political history. Yeah, that one is mind-blowing. And and actually, depending on how broadly or narrowly you define political history, the number could actually be much much smaller. Um, You know, we're kind of going off what if someone's at a a university and says they're interested in politics, then that would be something they would categorize themselves. But if you look at the number of courses that are actually offered in political history, it's very small. Um, So we're seeing, in effect, that political historians, as we write in the article, have become kind of of an endangered species. Mm -hmm. And if there's something we'd want to say, it's that it's a species that's in need of protection. And it's going to take action from outside our, our universities, really, to reverse it. It's going to take donors coming up and saying, hey, we want to establish professorships in this. It's going to take parents and students saying, hey, we want to see these kind of courses uh, at our university. Uh, it's going to take leadership from administrators uh, and the like to really reverse this course. What teaches the – or make the argument for us – what are we out if we if we don't have history and especially I guess in this case political history as as part of our core uh, curriculum? Um, what are we losing as a society? What how is it impacting our culture today and even our ability to you know interact with one another today? Yeah, I mean, certainly to speak to begin by speaking broadly about history. What we what we gain from the study of history is a sense of who we are and where we've come from. Um, we, you know, if you think about even your own life and you begin telling your life story to someone else, 
odds are you're going to tell a lot about your family and the experiences you've had and how those experiences have shaped who you are and who you've become. Uh, and that's true for um, a, a country or a, or a nation as well, that our, our experiences shape who we are and where we come from. If you want to understand the current divide between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump or, or, or the Republicans and Democrats, you really have to go back in time. Um, it didn't just start a year ago or a year and a half ago that their experiences growing up in the aftermath of the culture wars of the 1960s played a huge role in shaping our, our current partisan divide. So one of the key, most important values is, is un, or more, most important assets of, of teaching history is, is understanding who we are and how we've got to, got to, got to where we are. Um, then there's also, in terms of political history, um, what, what political history can do, it can help us understand how people at other times facing great challenges, excuse me, <clears throat> have responded, how they have come together, how they've achieved solutions. One of the things that Fred and I, my Fred Logoval, my, my great Pulitzer Prize winning co-author, um, what he and I, um, I think is find most important and most worrisome, or most important for us to understand, is the role of compromise. If you look at the history of American politics, there's definitely been partisan rancor. You know, it, partisanship is no nothing new, right? There was right. a guy who was beaten up on the floor of the U.S. Senate just before the Civil War. Oh, wow. uh, so, so certainly there is, you know, even as ugly as it is now, at least we haven't gotten there, you know. Uh, um, but there, uh, even in times of great partisanship, there have been. Um, important efforts to compromise and to reach solutions. I mean, one thing you see, even going back 20 years ago, uh, there was tremendous partisanship, but there was also a culture, especially within the U.S. Senate, of crossing across the right. aisle and making deals. I mean, Bob Dole, for example, who was a Republican nominee for president at one point, um, was a senator for, for a very long time, and he built his career upon making deals and getting things done. Um, and you see that that tradition of coming together and making compromises going by the wayside. And I think one of the reasons that has come to pass is that we no longer understand the value of that. We think it's all about standing up for what you believe in no matter what, and that turns politics into a holy crusade rather than a, how can we balance competing interests and make a just society. Mm. So I mean, when we look at this, I don't know what we even call it, this congested logjam of of uh, politicians, it, it, I mean, it very well could be simply that some of these younger generations even maybe they, they've never seen the actual compromise. They haven't seen the, I guess, the eloquent um, debates that and, and, you know, juxtapositions of 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 policy. I mean, there used to be some amazing work done. I think in in Congress and Senate, and yet in compromise, and yet now it's more just no. We'll just shut down the government, or um, we'll just you know call you names. Yeah, and of course there there are many different causes, so we don't want to oversimplify things. Right. But but Fred and I would say that that one of the factors we should look at and what that we should ponder is that we have not been seriously or or our. our we have not been teaching political history with nearly the seriousness and rigor um, since the 1970s. And so generations of people have been uh, growing up without this strong background. And so if we don't, we're lacking this fundamental understanding of our own political system, 
where it's come from, what it stands for, what its nature is. And I think that's one of the, the great crimes and tragedies. So we have generations of people who, you know, they'll get, of course we get some, right? We're mm-hmm. not saying that there's none of this, uh, but rather that it's lacking any of the kind of the sort of detail about how it works right. that, that really is essential to understanding. And I think if, as a historian myself, I think we're, what I've learned the most from digging into to wading through the details and trying to make sense of the details is an appreciation of, okay, this is how the process works. Uh, and now I kind of understand it. And I can make sense of the world as I listen to it in the news because I have some reservoir of knowledge based on my study of the mm. past. Yeah, and you can, you can draw out of that reservoir. In fact, a great um, example of this just came from one of our producers. I won't name names, but she said – and I mean, BYU is a hard school to get into grades-wise because there's a lot of people that want to get in. And so a lot of these are AP students, really high ACT scores, 4.0 grade point averages. And she told me that um, what, that she had never – she went to South Africa mm-hmm. to um, to do a study abroad. And when she got there is the first time she had heard about apartheid. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And she went – and so her point was I was a top – she didn't say this, but she was a top student in public education and got all the way out of public education and had never heard of apartheid. And and that might make sense, I guess. Okay. Okay, I guess. Or Mandela and South African history, except let alone – the other things that we need to know about, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, John Kennedy, Louisiana Purchase, Manhattan Project, Vietnam War, all the things you mentioned. I mean, there's a lot of lessons just sitting there. And I guess let's take a break. We'll come back, Kenneth. I want to find out why. Why do you think the history uh, – why have we quit teaching history since the 70s? Is Are we afraid of something? Are we Are we – are we afraid of our own history? Do we not like parts of our history? I'd love to have you in, enlighten us on that. More with Dr. Kenneth Osgood um, as he makes his argument about why we need to teach more political history if we want to create more compromise, more understanding in today's world. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Kenneth Osgood. Kenneth Osgood is a history professor at the Colorado School of Mines, and uh, he is the co-author of an article that we found, uh, I guess a, an op-ed we found in the New York Times with Frederick Logoval, um, Why Did We Stop Teaching Political History? It, it brings up some really important points, and, and maybe as we, as we feel like we're in this logjam politically, um, I, I think uh, Kenneth might be hitting a nerve, <laughs> at least with me, that maybe because we don't know some of our history or enough of our history, we don't quite know how to get through or negotiate or understand the current situation we are in. Dr. Kenneth Osgood, thank you again for being with us. Hey, it's a great pleasure. And I should say that right before the break, you were you were talking yeah. a little bit about BYU and your your um, some some experiences there and the nature of your students and all that. And I should mention that BYU is is a 
um, is one of the outliers there that they have um, on their staff, a great political historian hmm. um, who studies U.S. foreign relations, Andrew Johns, yeah. uh, wrote a fascinating book on the uh, impact of the, Vietnam, uh, the domestic politics during the Vietnam War. And uh, so I think BYU should should get a, a round of applause well, at least kudos for supporting there. the field. Absolutely. That's great. And I mean, I guess that's the key. History is the way to move forward, except so many are now saying, no, 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 no. We need to get these people ready to get a job today. And history takes them on a detour that gets them away from skills. They need the skills. They need to be coding. They need to be having practical experience that can get them paid today. Is that why we're not teaching it? Well, I I, I, it, it's not that simple. I think one of the one of the main reasons we're we're not teaching, and it has to do with how decisions are made at universities. And um, we still teach history, for example, at, at most universities, even here at the Colorado School of Mines, which is an applied science and engineering right. school. That um, we still teach history, not to everybody, um, but I at least get to have some impact. Um, but what I think the larger trend you're pointing out is that. There has been a shift in education priorities. Um, we received almost 500 comments to our New York Times op-ed uh, by 1 o'clock in the afternoon, so much so that the Times actually shut down the site. Hmm. And, and so that's an indication, as you said, that we struck a nerve. Uh, but many of the comments we received were actually people reflecting on either their experience as teachers currently or their experience as students going through the system. And I'll, I'll just read a couple that's yeah. exactly to what you just said. Uh, one person wrote, the shift to education for jobs buried education for responsible citizenship. A democratic republic cannot exist unless its people understand how it works and appreciate its institutions. Uh, another person commented, I think this is an important part of the equation, the changing priorities in education involving mind-numbing standardized testing in reading and math and the advent of the iPad in education, I'm not sure about that, have, been, have made political history an orphan and political sophistication, a dinosaur. Hmm. And I, have a, I have a personal experience about that. When I, I lived in Florida for 10 years, taught at Florida Atlantic University, and I used to be involved in this government-funded program to help educate our teachers on American history. And so I would run workshops with Broward County teachers about the teaching of political history, and they would be just eating it up. I mean, the teachers <laughs> loved it. But then they would sort of confess to me during the break that, you know, I'm not sure we'll actually be able to use any of this stuff because we have to teach to these standardized tests. and. Oh, yeah. In history on those tests. So, boom, all of a sudden, uh, whatever effort we might be trying to make to, to change things around is totally messed up by this bizarre incentive that says the only thing that matters are these standardized testing. If you can't teach to that, if you can't achieve there, everything else is a failure. So how are we going to teach people about their, 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 their responsibilities as citizens or their background as citizens if, we, if, we're, if our own priorities are framed in this way? Mm. Well, what do we do? I mean, because, again, everyone's, yeah, we got to standardize it. We've got to, um, we've got to, I guess, drive more to skills. We need to make it more technology-based. How do we, and where do you think it's the best? Is this something that would be better introduced and more deeply impacting a high schooler to then get them interested in it before they get to college? Or where's the best place to, to start? Uh, well, I think we do have to start at our nation's universities, at least initially, because yeah. because we need the expertise that, right. that comes from, and we need 
people to be um, expertly trained in these fields so that they can teach it effectively. One of the things I, I also find when I, when I meet people and I tell them I'm a historian, I get one of two responses, you know, oh, man, I love history, or oh, man, I can't stand it. <laughs> and, uh, and that's been my, my curse for 20 years. Right. And, w- and whenever that story happens, uh, it's followed by some version of the next sentence, which is uh, either I had a great history teacher or I had an awful teacher. And one of the things you find is that in many of the, the stories, people will tell you, you know, my, my history teacher was the gym coach, was the football coach, mm. uh, which is an indication, again, of the priorities. So one of the things that we need more in our educational system, not just in history but across the fields, is subject area expertise. Right, so people need to be really trained in these fields. If you're just going off the textbook uh, that you're handed, uh, it's going to be pretty shallow and thin what you can do with it. You lack the sort of detailed knowledge that can make you an effective teacher. So it's really important that we emphasize expertise among our teachers uh, and that we give them those skills. We were talking earlier about sort of why has it declined, and before we, you know, we shouldn't you know, so obsessed over the decline of political history that we don't recognize that there were good reasons why it declined. If you look at how history was taught, politics and and citizenship and things like that were greatly emphasized. But as a downside, we didn't know anything about the history of African-Americans. We didn't know about half our population, which is females. Uh, They were all written out of the history books. And so what you had in the 1960s, you had the origins of a pretty significant change. You had a lot of baby boom, um, uh, uh, of kids who had fought in World War II, uh, come back at the GI Bill. You have a whole generation of people who, for whom college would have been unaccessible for financial reasons, now able to go to college. And many of them are looking at their history books and saying, hey, my story's not in there. Hmm. Uh, um, one of the, You mentioned your experience at the University of Utah studying with a, a liberal uh, historian. Um, one of the most influential of, of historians of that ilk was Howard Zinn. And his story was that he came from a working-class background, um, and then he fights in, in World War II uh, as a bomber, and then you know, goes on to study history and finds, oh, my goodness, there are no workers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the working class itself is totally gone. Uh, and he says, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I, have, I want to understand sort of my background and the, and the role of my people. So what you had is this sort of generation shift saying we're missing important parts of the story. So the, 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 we have a swing that begins to emphasize we need to understand the role of African Americans. We need to understand the role of gays and lesbians. We need to understand the role of, of women and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it swung so far that the study of politics itself lost out. And another reason for that is sort of culturally in that atmosphere of the 60s and 70s and the aftermath of the Vietnam War and Watergate, that the doings of politicians and leaders became you know, sort of deeply distasteful. Um, right. And, and in some ways for good reason. Yeah. But as a result, you don't sort of look at something that's distasteful and say, therefore, I don't want to know anything else about it. Get rid it. of it, right. <laughs> Uh, In fact, it should be, I need to look at it more carefully. Um, But that sort of trend of sort of we need to combination of um, we're not we're sort of suspicious about the going ons of elites combining with the uh, we need to know these other stories meant that political history just became the very last priority. Well, it does. It seems like maybe what's they've they've taken the money, the funds, the focus that they used to give to the political historian and they've maybe directed some of it to women's studies. So now there's there's those historians and and into every possible category. Um, 
of of these minorities you were talking about that were never being talked about and broken it up into many different other departments? Uh, yeah, some of that is true, but I, I, w- I might not overstate it. I mean, another, if you look at right now, what's the fastest growing field of history in terms of the, um, the numbers of hires, I think probably at the top of that list would be environmental history. Hmm. And there is, a, there is a sense that, okay, in, in this time of, of great, of growing uh, awareness of the connection between humanity and the environment and its impacts, we kind of need to understand this. Yeah. Um, and so it's not a matter of saying that this or that story aren't valuable right. and people in universities are kind of making choices. For us, it's a matter of saying um, we also need to recognize that this is critical to the to the survival of our democracy, and and we need to take it seriously. What can we do as parents um, as we wrap this up? What can I do as a dad to bring in more political history into my family, into my life, and and maybe instill a little I mean a little excitement, a little intrigue into history, and and make it something my kids want to study. Yeah. So I mean, I personally, I. You know, I, mean, I guess I'm kind of biased, but I, I get involved in my kids' schoolwork, mm. uh, and when they're looking at a topic, I say, okay, let's let's go read about it online. Let's go, you know. And I think one of the great things you can do as a parent it's not, it's so easy nowadays. Uh, you can pick a pick any sort of historical topic, plop it into Google. And or or into YouTube, and you can find all kinds of interesting videos. You can find all kinds of interesting documents. You can, you know, hey, let's read this thing together and see what we make of it. So you can kind of make it a fun game for for you and your child. You can show an interest. You can tell them that it's important. You can um, ask your schools, what are you doing to sort of educate our kids in, in basic citizenship and see see what they're doing. I mean, you can you can kind of get involved in your kids' education. I think. Oh yeah, push on it. I've just seen. Uh, Playing a video like or a, a movie like Pearl Harbor started so many questions for my kids because all of a sudden um, it, it just created a, a historical opportunity. But if we could go start taking political figures, the uh, same thing happened with um, Abraham Lincoln when we watched that show. Um, wonderful stuff. Appreciate you, Dr. Kenneth Osgood. Thank you for your great work there at uh, the Colorado School of Mines. Keep writing. Keep pushing political history. We need it. We need to learn the art of compromise. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, uh, continue the discussion. Also, we are going to do a, a brand new segment to target one of our uh, our, our audience sectors. I don't know what we call it. Um, we're going to do a little rap, a little uh, news rap. You are? Well, I'm not. I have two experts of the senior generation that uh, are going to... Do their rapping debut. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, oh, man, have we got uh, a lot to talk about. Um, and we wanted, we, we, <laughs> we, we've got so many opportunities here at the Matt Townsend Show for you. Every Friday, it's kind of a special day for us because it's a day where we can get rid of a lot of uh, news stories that have been backed up. And um, so later in the show, we'll be doing what we call the News Flush. <laughs> We also want to try to wrap up the week for you, 
And um, we, we feel like part of our audience, we, we don't pay as much attention to a lot of our the media that we talk about, a lot of the, the examples we use, the stories we talk about, the movies are it's kind of for a younger generation. And we, we feel like we've kind of left out some of the the more senior uh, generations. And so it was actually brought to our attention um, by a wonderful uh, couple, Edsel and Agatha Dinwoody. Um, both, by the way, have a history in news and journalism. I grew up next to a couple of Dinwoodies. Did you? Yeah. Are the nicest they, people. Ed, Edsel, is, is that one of them? No, Agatha. they must be... Uh, uh, actually, I don't know. It's kind of a common name, so maybe they weren't even related. Yeah. Well, the, these these two are very special. They they also are. They're very young. They're very spry, um, but they are also pushing ninety, and they they want to be able to reach out and give back to community. So they have put together what they are calling the news wrap, and um, it's just their news review of the week in wrap form. Yo, it's October 2016. Yo, VP candidates debate. Why can't good ideas cut through the hate? Such aggressive people control our fate. (sighs) Wish that I could hibernate. Yo, a grizzly bear was not sleeping when a Montana man came a-creeping. The bear broke the man's arm and tore up his head. Then the man made a video before finding a hospital bed. That's one tough dude, let that be said. Oh, Robbers stole Kim K's jewels. They found a way. Photos on social media made her a target, some say. The internet giveth and the internet taketh away. Yo. Creepy clowns popping up across the nation. Hurricane Matthew causes evacuation. Don't let all this news cause you irritation. Go out, do good, and be somebody's inspiration. Word. Peace. Out. Well done. Um... Appreciate the great rapping seniors. It's Edsel and Agatha Dinwoody. It, it's hard to put a rap together. They, but you, if you all could have seen the video, they were, they were gangster. They were gangsta. They were gyrating. Um, but uh, their that was their first rap, and we we've got some rap experts that are going to be. Um, Working, they were going to do some beatboxing. Yeah, but and, they didn't have their dentures in. Yeah, the teeth, the teeth, you know, were moving too much to get the, to get the sound. So they're working that out uh, again. Edsel and Agatha Dinwiddie with the headlines. I think their next album is called "Trapped in the News Wrap." <laughs> yeah, they were all stuck in it, all wound up in the news wrap. Great stuff. Uh, again, as we – our prayers go out to everybody on the East Coast, and we wish we could do more for you. Um, Florida up all the way to North Carolina, you uh, – be ready. Be prepared. Do what you're told to do. Get out. Pay attention. And uh, the rest of us will be praying for you and be there when it's all over. 
We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one for the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. More fun, more learning. Up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Happy Friday to you. If you are uh, one who counts the days, it is Friday. You can now relax. Well, get through your day. Then you can relax. So much going on. That's true for everybody, unless you live in Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. Probably not relaxing much today as uh, Hurricane Matthew is slowly working its way up that uh, southeast coast. Man, and it's a it's a sl- it's a slow moving storm. Hurricane uh, level three, about ten miles an hour, working its way up. But don't wait until you see. The rain start coming until you leave. No. It's got such big bands that pretty much half of three-quarters of Florida is already covered by the bands from the hurricane. So it is uh, – it's the real deal, folks. You don't want to mess around, and we, we need you. So come on. Just do what you're told. Get out of town. Get out of Dodge. And uh, we'll continue to bring you updates about that, anything we hear um, about Hurricane Matthew ruining a really good name. I thought it was pronounced Matthew. Okay. I think that's – I like that better. Hurricane Matthew. From now on, that's the only way, we, the only way we're going to talk about it. Uh, also, by the way, October 7th happens to be bathtub day. Oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. Mm. You make bath time I think every so song fun. written about bathtubs ducky, came on Sesame Street. I do too. Bert and Ernie. That, that was them trying to motivate children to bathe. But they just spent the whole time playing with rubber duckies instead. <laughs> so, so true. So bathtub day, one thing you can celebrate. Uh, some people big into baths. Some haven't taken as many as they need. It's because they think the whole time they got to sing songs like this. We've also got a lot of big headlines coming up. A, a warning about salmonella. We'll be uh, talking to you about that. Clown warnings as well. Clowns are coming out of everywhere now. Schools are being closed because of threats of clown violence. Crazy. I think they're going to start losing their jobs at the circus, too. Yeah. I think if they keep this up. We're going to have to let you go. Um, (laughs) The kids don't like you like they used to. Sorry. We're going to need to let you go. We will also be speaking, if you happen to lose your job, with a job expert, an expert talking about the fastest growing job categories for flexible work. One of the lead, you won't believe this, one of the lead um, uh, organizations that is so pro flex work, you won't believe who it is. I'll just say, I'll give you a little hint. It rhymes with metal moverment. Hmm. Is it the... The Metro Collateral Government. Jeverment? Was that the job? Close. Close. You want to try one more? The Federal <gasps> Government? <gasps> no. You keep thinking about it. 
Oh, come on! I know, you were so close. Yeah, the metal moverment is what it rhymes with. And apparently, the metal moverment are really into flex time. Hmm. So we'll tell you what jobs you need to uh, be, you know, prepared for if you want a real flexible schedule. Um, and if you want to, if you want to be able to uh, to take advantage of all of that, so we'll get to that in a minute too, as well as just other interesting stuff, including Mexican authorities seizing more and more weapons and methods of trying to get drugs into the country. They're getting creative. They're getting very creative. But first, before we get into all of that excitement and fun, let's turn to Sadie Nielsen with the headlines. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country, Sadie. Hurricane Matthew battered Florida with destructive force early this morning as its eyewall brushed the eastern edge of Florida, leaving more than 300,000 people without power. It has claimed at least 339 lives in Haiti. The Category 3 storm, the first major hurricane threatening a direct hit on the U.S. in more than a decade, unleashed its fury as it crept northward, uh, north-northwest at 14 miles per hour, which centered at about 25 miles east of the Cape at 6.30 a.m. The U.S. National Weather Service said Matthew, though expected to weaken in the next 48 hours, could be the most powerful to strike northeast Florida in 118 years. The older brother of John Benet Ramsey filed a defamation lawsuit Thursday against a Michigan forensic pathologist who told Detroit area media outlet that Burke Ramsey killed his six-year-old sister. The complaint alleges that Dr. Werner Spitz said in a September 19th interview that nine-year-old Burke bludgeoned John Benet to death in 1996. Spitz made this accusation without ever examining John Benet's body, without viewing the crime scene, and without consulting the pathologist who performed the autopsy on John Benet. The the complaint filed in Wayne County Circuit Court in Detroit says. Despite alluding to Bill Clinton's infidelity during his first presidential debate, Donald Trump said he will not bring up the former president's past during their second showdown on Sunday. I want to win this election on my policies for the future, not Bill Clinton's past, Trump told Page Six. Jobs, trade, ending illegal immigration, veteran care, and strengthening our military is what I really want to be talking about. Trump's campaign confirmed the quote to NBC News. And finally, yes. this story comes from our own backyard in Provo, Utah. What? Um, I thought this was very interesting. A Utah dad was shocked to be charged 39 uh, 35 on a hospital bill for skin-to-skin contact after his son's birth earned the charge with a humorous GoFundMe mm. page. Uh, Ryan Grassley, 37, posted a photo to Reddit showing the bill he received after the recent birth of his son, Samuel, at the Utah Valley Hospital in Provo. The bill included a almost $40 charge for skin-to-skin contact after C-section, which means I had to pay $40 to hold my baby after he was born. Um, So he started a GoFundMe campaign to pay the $40 charge. um, And he said, any money donated over $40 will be put towards a vasectomy because I never want to go through these sleepless new baby nights again. He wrote on the crowdfunding page. Pretty pretty strong language. Um, But the the hospital said that the reason for that, there's an explanation, is apparently the nurse who is in the room helping the mother during the procedure, um, they actually have to bring in another nurse to help. To take care of the baby. To take care of the baby. So that was the the cause of the extra charge. But he was obviously a little bit upset about it. There's a big movement, skin to skin contact. And normally the skin is the mother's skin to the baby's skin. But when you have a cesarean, they got to work on the mother to get her back together. Yep. And the... um, so the father then, I guess, sits there and he can hold the baby skin to skin and it creates a bonding and it, it it's very healthy for the child. 
even though their you know, their face is nestled on a nice bed of fur. Yes. Um, but here's the thing: he was then charged forty bucks to do skin to skin, something he could do free, right? Simply because a nurse had to be there to watch. Yes. Okay. Don't you love? Yeah. Hospital politics. Yeah. Great. You know, it's no different than the practices that we have here at BYU Radio. I mean, if a student comes in and they they touch the microphone, there's like a twenty dollar microphone yeah, touching, touching fee. fee. We oh. just dock it from their paycheck. We don't, yeah. you know, we don't demand yeah. it right on the spot. We're not heartless. Well, we that do. That explains yeah. so much. Did you notice your check yeah. was less than you thought? Way less. Yeah. Go go start a GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, maybe I will. That's a good idea. Well, we have to clean up after. You know. That skin to skin thing. Oh, baby, hubba hubba hubba. That was the only no baby no that's no. thing no. I have on there. That's a different baby, and hubba hubba has a different meaning. Hubba bubba is a fantastic bubblegum. Fantastic bubblegum. Thank you, Sadie. Uh, that it's really cool what's happening skin to skin and even dads get to do skin to skin and then they they also have a moment after the baby i wonder if terry went through this with his family where it's kind of just family bonding time and that they, that costs extra they keep everybody out i think it's it's 60 dollars cuz they have to have security guards there to keep in-laws out so that everyone can just bond with the baby and if uncle harry is there then that's an extra 100 yeah <laughs> We all have an Uncle Harry. Okay, so here's, here's a really um, interesting story that I, I, I was surprised about because I didn't, I didn't realize this was a problem. But according to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, they've come out with a new warning that says kissing chickens can lead to con- contracting salmonella. Really? Yeah. I mean, you knew you could get salmonella like from chicken Juice that runs off while you're cutting chicken, you know, on a board. I don't It sounds disgusting, but you can get salmonella that way. You knew that. But apparently um, in a study released last week that the increased popularity of backyard poultry flocks uh, has made it so more and more people, I guess, are kissing chickens. So, good, good night, little chicken. So this is a problem. <laughs> So wait a minute. Are we safe? Can I still kiss my wife? Yeah, she's not a chicken. Okay. Yeah. Or no, I've met her. She's not a chicken. She's wonderful. So yeah, you're fine to kiss her. Okay. Good. But don't go out in the backyard and kiss chickens. Yeah. Does that make sense? I have so little in life. <laughs> uh, it, it, they found out that kissing chickens. Um, can cause, uh, or, or really live poultry is what they're saying, is associated with salmonella or LPAS. The CDC looked at cases that occurred between 1990 and 2014 and found that some people affected were engaging in risky behaviors. Um, so, so it's not just kissing. It's also be careful not to cuddle. Don't cuddle your chickens. I bet they would make great cuddlers, though. Yeah. Don't let chickens roam in your bedrooms or your bathrooms. Okay. So chickens are outside animals. Don't. Outside. Outside. Don't bring them inside. And don't cuddle. Don't kiss. Don't let them roam. Okay. Are cuddling and spooning the same thing? Yeah, I'd say it's the same thing. Don't don't spoon your chicken unless it's in soup. Thank you very much. 
So uh, we couldn't believe that this was a thing. And we did a little research and we found a video um, by a guy named Larry White talking about how, oh, it's a thing. I've heard people say that too much chicken kissing is not good for you, baby. But I don't know about that. There's many times that we've cuddled, we've shared stories and toothbrushes. Doesn't seem to me like it's enough. There's just not enough of it. It's just not enough. Oh, babe. Though lately I've been feeling sick. So sick it makes me cry. Just like the more we kiss, the worse I feel. And I just don't know why. Oh, no, babe. You tell me. I've got salmonella. What did you go and do? I feel so bad, and now I'm blaming you. What kind of disease is this that you're giving me? Is it in your beak or maybe in your feet? Now all I know is every time you're near, I feel nauseous. My dumb is rumbling. I lose my lunch. Oh, what you go and do, darling, I've... I've had too much of your love, babe Oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why I've had too much of your love, babe Oh, no, babe Wow, that was great. Larry White. So he started, uh, he was a little disenchanted with his chicken after a while. It's a, it's a wonderful, I think, lesson about why we don't kiss and love on poultry. Your tummy starts rumbling. Once the tummy rumbles. You lose your lunch. <laughs> it's just not as fun as it used to be. That's fantastic. Well, we appreciate Larry White uh, letting us use that. Um, I wonder if he's related to Barry White. I don't think there's a relation. Are you sure? No. Okay. I mean, yes, I am sure. Yes, you're sure. There's not. Uh, one other story that we wanted to make sure we got to um, was about, you know, Mexican police are finding more and more homemade methods, devices used to get their to get drugs into the country. And in fact, they found a homemade bazooka that they they found may have been used to launch a contraband over the border. You know, like those homemade bazookas that launch T-shirts and have you ever seen those like at a, at a basketball game? Yeah, like, oh, there, there it is. Uh, so they could like launch a brick, let's say, of drugs, and it'll shoot the brick over the wall and into some guy's That's clever living room window. So um, because of that, they they found other things that we wanted to make sure because they're getting a bad rap. Mexican drug dealers are getting a bad rap? Well, because we blame all of our drug woes on South America, Mexico. But it's we, we just want you to know, and, and I think the Mexican police wanted you to know, they're trying to fix this. Cause, so they made a list of all of the other devices that have been caught that they found 
in order to get kind of drugs into the country and transport drugs illegally using airspace or underground tunnels, all these different things. So we've, we've got a few of them here we just wanted to, to demo for you. Um, so one obviously was the brick launcher. Yeah, they just launch whatever package of drugs over the wall. They have another one that they're using called the um, reefer rocket. And uh, it, it can deliver um, like a missile, basically, a lot of marijuana. If that was if that if, you know, but they're they're catching these things. They're trying to get it to not explode on the way over, though. One they found, which was interesting, was they, they actually found on um, in the United States was a peyote pistol. Which just can, in a targeted way, deliver so many doses of peyote. Um, ooh, one of, that I found really interesting out of Australia was called the uh, Doparang. So it's a boomerang that uh, they can throw and then, you know, uh, it will drop dope, I guess, drugs. Well, wouldn't it just come back to them? Yeah, yeah but well, it drops them once, it, once it's, you know, at the apex. So there's like a special release button uh-huh, that they yeah. – okay, gotcha. And then, then the, the doperang comes back to them. A- another one that wasn't as popular, but it used to be popular in the old days, especially like over um, – uh, I, I don't know, just they could float it down river. They could do things like that. It was called the Cracker Barrel. And it's just a barrel full of crack or other drugs. It could be any drug. It could be any drug. It just floats down a barrel. And then the famous one that we've seen some videos of last year, a few years ago, was a submarine that had drugs in it. And they're calling that the tokarine. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're finding ways to stop all this drug uh, trafficking. But it does show you how creative these criminals are becoming. Very creative. I mean, it's... And the names are fantastic. Yeah. Reefer Rocket. I think they have focus groups. Yeah, they do. What should we call our submarine? Oh, let's call it the Tokarine. How does this name make you feel? <laughs> I feel it's a little too clinical. Um, we will take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Bree Reynolds uh, about her article, The Fastest Growing Categories for Flexible Work. Pretty interesting topics. If you want more flex time in your life, guess what? You may you may have you may have a lot of choices here, and a lot of opportunities. Different uh, organizations want more flex time for their people. Stick with us; we'll give you the insight in just a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, more people are working from home now than ever before, but uh, some companies have been better at providing flex time and working opportunities than others. And they may not be the ones that you typically associate with, you know, the pajama-clad, home-brewed workplace. Bree Reynolds, the Senior Career Specialist at Flex Jobs, is uh, joining us by phone right now. And uh, she's talking to us today about the fields uh, that are providing more and more flexibility. So if you're going to go out, maybe get uh, retooled, get new information, new education, there are certain fields that are much more open to Flex Jobs, as there are certain companies and organizations that are more willing to do it. Bree Reynolds, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thanks for having me, Matt. Talk to us. I mean, flex jobs, it used to be something that companies didn't want. They, you know, they wanted everybody in the room. They wanted to see their pretty faces. But it sounds like, according to your article, more and more organizations are are open to it. Yeah, we're really seeing a lot of growth in terms of the companies that are offering flexible work. It seems like uh, with technology becoming much more accessible and people just being interested in flexible work, companies are really picking this up and making it a part of their work-life balance programs and offering it to their employees. Are they doing it because it does it actually produce results for them or are they doing it to placate, to, to make everyone happy and make sure that they still have a workforce? <laughs> I think it might be a little bit of both at this point, although more companies are getting a bit savvier about how they track these programs so they can actually figure out what the return on investment is for them as a company. Um, And so I think at first it maybe was seen as a little bit of a perk, maybe five or ten years ago. You know, you let people work from home or you give them a little bit of uh, schedule flexibility. But it seems like more companies today are actually tracking what that does for them in terms of productivity, in terms of employee retention, and all those sorts of things, reduce stress levels. And um, and they're actually saying, oh, this does have an impact on how we reach our business objectives and how we how the bottom line looks at our company. Um, so it's a good it's a good trend to see that they're actually starting to track that sort of thing, because it is a benefit for both the people who get to work flexibly and the companies that are offering it. Right. In fact, uh, a 2015 Gallup poll that you cited in your article found that 37 percent of American employees had flexible working options compared with only 9% in 95. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a really big increase. And that's specifically for people who are working from home, which is a really um, sort of specific type of flexible work where um, you're able to do your job at home. So uh, there are some folks who have really, you know, at-home compatible jobs where they're working mostly on a laptop and a phone, um, and they're able to do that on a regular basis, like that the Gallup survey showed. Um, And then we also have types of flexibility like flexible scheduling and things like that that have grown, too. So I think with the technology and uh, the millennials coming up and really just seeing flexible work as a regular way of working and not really much different than um, how they would want to work in general, it seems to be kind of reaching a swelling point. Yeah. We talk a lot about on the show um, engagement and employee engagement and how some Gallup numbers, I believe it was Gallup, talked about um, 70 percent of the workforce is disengaged at work. And I think, wow. But maybe some of that is the need for flex schedules, flex time and, and just opportunities. So many live a life where they can do stuff on their phone at the park um, or on their laptop or their iPad somewhere else that rejuvenates them, makes them feel healthier. It it just seems like this isn't going away. Do you predict that in the future, will will it reach levels of 80 percent eventually? How high can this go? Or or I guess there just are some jobs that you can't have too much flex time. Yeah, there are still, yeah, some positions that you can't really do too much flexibly with. They're pretty set in stone. But we have seen a lot of predictions that say around 50% of the U.S. workforce have jobs that could be done from home. Um, so specifically when you're talking about working from home, about 50% of people have jobs that, that could be done in the office, which is a big chunk. I mean, right now, as Gallup said, about 37% are working from home, at least occasionally. Um, and so there is room for growth there. Uh, Dell is an interesting example because they have this initiative where they want 20 
by 2020, they want about 50% of their workforce to be working from home. So companies are actually sort of setting that goal for themselves as well. So hmm. yeah, it's definitely possible for a lot of the public. What uh, what do you see the benefits are, you know, as far as working kind of in this flex way or working from home versus the traditional way everybody comes, parks in the same parking lot, eats in the same mm-hmm. cafeteria? What are the benefits? There are a lot of benefits. And again, I'll, you know, it's not for everyone, for sure. For right. my um, experience, I've worked from home since 2010, and I love it. Um, wouldn't ever really consider going back to an office if I could avoid it. My husband, on the other hand, works from home uh, and can't stand it. He wants to get back in the office. He wants to be around people. Um, but for the people who enjoy it, the benefits are really that um, lower stress levels. You're not commuting every day. You don't have that morning rush where you're trying to get ready for work and get your kids ready for school and get out the door. Uh, you can really take your time and, and just kind of enjoy your mornings a little bit more. Um, you also have a lot of control over your workspace, so it's a lot more comfortable. You're able to choose your your space where you're sitting, uh, where your desk, all that sort of stuff goes. Um, and then also, uh, in terms of productivity, people who work from home are actually really impressed with how much more productive they can be. Hmm. So it's not just the employer saying, oh, this is great, we get more productive workers, but it's people themselves who say they're able to focus more. They they have fewer distractions from their coworkers. They're um, attending fewer meetings that don't really matter. You know, they're yeah. really getting to the core of their work. They don't have that distraction going on. Well, I, I think of it too that as I've worked with some of my employees that um, work from home, I have to really over communicate. I communicate in a way better with them than the mm-hmm. ones that are near me. Because I have to just to make sure that we know what we're doing and that we know how to measure it. So I wonder if it doesn't force everybody to to play a better game, a tighter game. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it's the communication piece is so key when you work from home. And I think that's one of the areas where when you see successful programs, they're all really good at communicating with each other. So like you said, you almost have to over communicate. You have to really make sure everybody's on the same page that everybody is tuned in to what they're supposed to be working on and how that fits into how everyone else is working. Um, whereas in an office, you might have a little bit less of that because you see people working, you sort of make assumptions that they're working on the thing that you think they might be working on. And um, so there's that, that you know, quieter communication going on. Whereas when you work from home, it's really proactive. You are talking to people all the time. It's actually a lot less isolating than people think because you do have to communicate so yeah. often. We we also talk a lot about introverts, extroverts. I could see, too, that this could be a wonderful thing for an introvert that might do better just in their own setting, in their own place. And maybe the extrovert's the one that can hardly wait to get out and socialize. And is it is it does it tend to break in certain, you know, types of people? I mean, I would assume like some people may not do as well at home just because they don't focus either. So, I think, you know, it could go. Yeah. It depends on the person, right? Yeah, I think it's more dependent on the person and those sorts of skills, like your ability to focus yourself um, to to handle being alone. Um, so that introversion, extroversion thing comes into a little bit, but more so it's it's the really being able to focus, being able to manage yourself and your time um, and stay on task. Those are sort of the really big ones. And that communication piece, you have to be really comfortable communicating not only verbally, but also, um, you know, in writing uh, on chat and instant messenger programs and when you're doing web conferencing and all those different things. So, um, you know, I think actually extroversion can sort of help you be really good at working from home because you're more likely to be reaching out to people and, right. and be a kind of open communicator. Whereas the introverts like myself, 
we tend to be a little bit more um, closed in that way and mm-hmm. less open to communication. So, yeah, as long I think as long as you know your strengths and your weaknesses, you can make it work for you if you're really trying. Uh, a startling statistic that we found on your website um, uh, was at FlexJobs was that only 7% of workers say they're most productive in the office. Yes, yes. People That's really startling. prefer to get out of the office when they have to work on important tasks. Yeah, we did a survey of uh, over 3,100 people, and, and only 7% said the office is where they really prefer to be to get their most important work done. Um, and, you know, from that group, people preferred instead to be outside of the office, either at home or at a coffee shop or a co-working space, just somewhere that has a different vibe that is less distracting than the office when they really need to focus and get work done. Hmm. Um, yeah, only 7%. That's kind of shocking. So when we, th- we think of flexible flexibility and flex time, I mean, we're, some of the times we're talking about the time, but a lot of times it sounds like we're talking about the location. Does, does flexibility factor into any other part of the job other than just time and location? It does, absolutely. About 8% of the people in the survey said they actually did prefer the office, but only after hours. They liked those off-hour times, you know, outside the 9 to 5 when there's fewer people at their office hmm. to distract them, but they do like that office environment. So when flexibility, when we talk about that term, we're really talking about working from home as part of it, but also flexible scheduling, so that sort of being able to shift your hours um, either working alternative schedules or maybe you're just shifting your hours to avoid commuting time. So you're maybe working earlier and leaving earlier so that you're not spending extra time sitting in traffic to and from work. Um, And then also part-time schedules. That seems to be something people are interested in for professional part-time jobs where, you know, you might have a a high-powered position. It's a career-oriented position, but it's just part-time hours Mm. instead of full-time. Um, and then freelance uh, is another big piece of that. I think that's something we hear about a lot more often nowadays is, is freelance and contract opportunities. I guess that this is, in a way, a nightmare for the HR department. Because, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's good. You, you've got to meet them where they are. But, boy, trying to figure out flex time, flex pay. It used to be they, you know, everybody's going to be here. 40 hours is the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you must be here so often. We'll do consistent reviews nobody's, we don't have part-timers, you're a full-timer or you're only part-timers. I mean, it's, the the flex is really now, I guess, starting to show that employees have different needs. Yeah, yeah, different needs for sure. And for HR, it is, you know, it can be more to organize, a little bit more to handle. Um, And on the flip side of that, they're hopefully, you know, getting out of this more happy, happier workers. Uh, they're easier to retain. They're not losing people quite as much. That was actually one of the big things we found in the survey also is I think it was something like 80% of people said they would be more loyal um, to their employers if they had flexible work options. So, mm. um, you know, from HR's perspective, it is more complicated potentially to organize all of this and just keep track of everything. But once you have a system in place, you really start to see those benefits. Come oh, in. Yeah. And I, I love it. It just shows we're humans, right? We're not just a bunch of gerbils. Um, powerful stuff. We'll take a break. More with Bree Reynolds and uh, this discussion about flexibility in your career. We'll come back, talk about which employers are, are really good at it and what areas of specialty have the best opportunity of flex time. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you earn more right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever wanted more flexibility in your life, in your work schedule? Well, you, you may just have that opportunity. According to our guest today, Bree Reynolds, uh, flexibility in your schedule and in your lives, it's a real thing. You there's there's organizations that uh, that do a great job and Breeze Breeze Company FlexJobs.com is um, is one of the leaders in, in helping us understand more about that. Bree, thank you again so much for being with us. Of course, thanks for having me. Uh, Bree, you wrote that article. The fastest growing job categories for flexible work may surprise you. What are the categories um, that that really give an advantage if somebody wants flex time? Yeah, so these are the categories where we're seeing the most growth in terms of flexible job openings. You know, where where are the jobs is <laughs> kind yeah. of a big thing with this. And so we're seeing a lot of growth in government and politics, uh, engineering, project management, communications, and travel and hospitality. Those seem to be the with with a lot of growth over the last year. That was the time frame that we looked at. Wow. And and um government doesn't that doesn't make sense. You mean the government? <laughs> it is a little counterintuitive, yeah, that they're being um, really proactive in this area. I think it was back in 2010, uh, the Federal Telework Act went into effect and actually encourages all of the main, I think it's the 10 main government agencies, to allow employees to telecommute whenever possible, which is working from home. Um, and so they've really taken that up, and, and a lot of the really big government agencies like U.S. Department of Agriculture, Interior, Transportation, those are the ones that are really offering a lot of telecommuting opportunities. Um, and they're also the ones that are tracking it best. So, yeah, the government is actually kind of leading the, the, the charge when it comes to this one. Wow. I mean, it's rare. It seems like that the government <laughs> just jumps on it and takes the lead. But in a way, this has got to be it's, it's got to be financially uh, helpful, too, because you don't need to have as many have, have as much property, have as many offices. I mean, a lot of things, exactly. it could be very beneficial. Exactly. Yeah, the reports are coming out now where these government agencies have been tracking this. They've been able to reduce their real estate, which means they're saving um, tens of millions of dollars annually in their real estate costs, in maintaining those offices, even in the heating and cooling and buying office supplies and all that sort of stuff because they're allowing their uh, workers to work from home instead. So it's, it's a really big cost savings for them. And then, of course, you also have the continuity aspect of it, where if there is some sort of weather-related event where, you know, in Washington, D.C., if it snows a couple inches in the winter, that city shuts down for days. Oh, yeah. Um, and so having everybody be able to still function when they're at home and work just as if they were in the office, it really helps to to keep things moving. Um, and that's, you know, for private businesses, too. So, yeah, they're doing a good job. Well, and in another way, it puts people uh, in the real world. Right. So instead of making a decision in your office uh, in this sterile environment, you're making it. Some of these decisions you're thinking about on the playground as you're picking up your kids from school. Exactly. Yeah. Really. It like you were saying before, it humanizes the way we work. We're yeah. not gerbils. <laughs> we are out there in the real world and and using our lives to inform the work that we're doing. What are so the federal government? I guess is 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 taking lead there. What are some other organizations that we may have heard of that are doing a really good job in flex time? Yeah. When it comes to these growth areas, we see in engineering companies like Dell um, and Deloitte are kind of two of the biggest ones that are, are posting those types of jobs. 
uh, in project management, we see Xerox and United Health Group, um, and those are really sort of leading the way when it, turn, when it comes to flexibility. And when we looked at this, it was all types of flexibility. So anything from, you know, remote jobs to freelance to part-time to flexible schedules, all of those things combined. Um, in the communications arena, we saw companies like IBM and also Yelp, that wonderful mm-hmm. review site that I use all the time to find restaurants and yeah. go get my dinner from. And, uh, and then travel and hospitality, uh, we saw companies like Hilton Worldwide and then G6 Hospitality and BC Travel were two of the other ones. It's, it's a different world, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it's like these companies just show that there's such a huge variety of companies that are taking advantage of flexible work options and offering this to their potential employees. Um, they're, they're using it to attract people. They're using it to retain people. It's just got a lot of benefits for companies. And you think of companies like Xerox and IBM. I mean, these were the companies that actually institutionalized the work environment. <laughs> these are the ones that <laughs> nine to five America and now they're the ones that are leading in this flex jobs world. How cool is that? I guess that's innovation. That's how you stay alive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're really seeing it as sort of a necessity. Uh, it's kind of doing a little bit of a 180. And I mean, the way that I work today, it wasn't even an option for me when I was in college, you know, 15 years ago. Right. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting time. And for a lot of people, a lot of people are just now realizing, hey, I could work this way. You know, let me try to find jobs that allow me to do this. Um, so, yeah, we're reaching a really nice kind of groundswell of flexibility. This this kind of freelance mentality, too, where a lot of people are um, they're, they're freelancing. They might they might have two part time jobs or they might just be 1099 and consulting with three or four companies. It seems like that's pretty healthy, too, because it. Um, it, it, it allows you to stir the pot, get more ideas from people if you can make that work. But it's, it also takes a different type of human that's that's maybe <laughs> less risk averse. I don't know if they're less risk averse, but they're they're willing to roll the dice a little bit more. Are people that are doing flex jobs? Are they what what is their what's their personality like in their ability to risk? Because this is You're- for some this is very daring. Yeah, you're right, especially with freelance um, and contract work where you're basically your own boss. You're more or less starting your own business. Um, when you go out as a freelancer, you're responsible for everything, your own health care, your own taxes, uh, invoicing, making sure that you get paid by these clients that you're taking on. So that freelancing in particular really takes some special skill sets. You have to be really well organized, not only have the skills that you're offering, you know, let's say you are a graphic designer or a writer or uh, a computer engineer, but you also have to have business skills too um, to be able to market yourself and actually find clients. Um, so that one is definitely one to consider a lot and make sure you do your research before you jump in. Um, and then with working from home and having a flexible schedule, you know, it's it's more of those things of you know the focus, the self management, um, all of those kind of skills that go into it. Hmm. Now at flexjobs.com, where you work, talk to us about. What is the goal of, of your organization and your website? Sure. So FlexJobs is a job search service. We specialize in these sorts of jobs, which is why I talk a lot about this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so we list telecommuting, flexible schedule, part-time, and freelance jobs on our site. And the main thing with our site is that everything is pre-screened. So a lot of the work-from-home jobs in particular that you find out there are scams. There's a ton of scams in that area. And you've probably seen those emails that, that pop up in your spam box every mm-hmm. now and then promising tons of money for working from home in your pajamas. 
Um, so there's things like that, but there's also really sophisticated scams out there. So the reason that we founded FlexJobs was to make it possible for people looking for real professional level flexible jobs, including work from home jobs, to find those without having to worry about scams. So that's basically how we were founded was to, to have one clearinghouse kind of place for flexible jobs at a professional level that are pre-screened, don't have any scams, um, and are just really legitimate, flexible jobs. It's uh, interesting. I just did a search on your site for my city, and amazing stuff, job opportunities from like a urology surgical coder, which sounds really hard, um, but to being a vice president, writers, uh, directors of commodity management, all of these different jobs. I I mean, these are... Adjunct faculty, information security, these aren't just, you know, data entry jobs. Teachers, it's you've got every kind of job. Yeah, that's that's a perfect way of putting it. It's it's people are really surprised uh, at the of the variety of jobs that can be done flexibly. And like you said, with there are some that are kind of those stereotypical work from home jobs, which are real types right. of jobs, data entry, customer service. Um, but there are so many more types of jobs out there. And that's one of the big things we are always trying to do is just educate people that there are flexible jobs for your career field. We actually look at, I think, over 55 career fields now. Um, and there are flexible jobs in all of them. And some offer more you know, telecommuting than others. And others offer more flexible schedules than others. So oh. um, you really have to do some research before you um, you really get to know what's out there for your particular career but there's a lot out there. I mean, we saw um, actually still posted today, there are a number of high school PE teachers that are virtual positions. So you are working online teaching gym and health oh, wow. <laughs> across the country. So <laughs> it's great. Yeah, something for everybody. <laughs> that is great. Totally. Um, what would you tell the new college grads, these that are coming out? I mean, is it, should, would it be better to go get into a company, kind of experience that? What advice do you give the college grad? Uh, I think it really depends on what they're most interested in. Um, So from my perspective, you know, when I graduated college, I'm glad that I had that in-office experience just because I didn't know what it was like to work in an office until I had graduated college and went off and got my job. Um, And then I, you know, working at home, I now kind of can compare the two and say, I don't think I would ever go back to an office. I really like working from home. So it might be good to test it out and, and really focus on, the position itself, the work that you would be doing, but are you know are there are there other types of flexibility involved in it? So maybe not ruling out anything based on the flexibility, but just thinking about what you most want. Um, if it's to work from home, that's great. If it's to have a flexible schedule, that's another option. Um, so thinking about what you really want, and then going out and finding the companies that support that type of work uh, and how you want to do it to find that really good match for you. And it also looks like you could fairly easily, if you wanted to, build – so it's you're not only ever just doing one type of job. You could have two, dot, two, two jobs that are different but could you know be synergistic. Yep, exactly. We see that too where people either don't want to choose between two different career fields that they're really interested in or they have one kind of you know, quote-unquote day job where that's their main source of income, but then they have these freelance projects on the side where they're building up portfolios, they're getting a little more experience to eventually move into that career field more full-time. So, yeah, if you have if you have ideas and you're not exactly what sure of what you want to do, which I know at, for college students, sometimes you get done with college and you think, well, I, I really don't know which direction I want to go in. Um, you know, freelancing and part-time work can give you the option to 
actually test out those different ideas instead of just committing to one 40 hour a week full time job. Mm. You know, put your put your feet in different areas and uh, and see what feels best. Yeah. Now, Bree, as we wrap it up, what would you say? What would you say is a sign? So if you're just kind of the typical go sit in your cubicle, put your head down and just hammer it out. What would be what are some signs we should look for that might tell us it might be time to look at a more flex flexible job? Um, you know, what tells us what are the indicators it's time to maybe look around? <laughs> Good question. I would say uh, you know, is it the office environment that you're in? What are your, what are your relationships with your coworkers like? Uh, do you have any sort of flexibility? Are you bumping up against your boss when you're asking for time off or you need to take your kid to the doctor or whatever it might be? Like all those little things where life intersects with work, how, how much friction is there for you in those areas? Um, you know, if your commute is terrible, this is one of the biggest things that pushes people into more flexible jobs is their commute is just the worst. Mm. Their job isn't so bad, but getting to their job is the most difficult part. And then they wind up at work at 9 a.m. grumpy and frustrated, <laughs> and that's how they start their work day every day. Um, yeah. That's not pleasant. No, <laughs> not it's want. not. So that's a good sign, too. Your commute and then just, you know, all those times that life intersects with work, how well can you... Uh, juggle that. And if you can't juggle it very well, it might be time to get a flexible job. Great advice, Bree. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, your great work there at uh, Flex Jobs. Honestly, I'm impressed. Go check out the web the website, flexjobs.com. Um, whether you're an employer or an employee, it just, it'll open up your mind like crazy. Plus, just wonderful resource to get more job tips, ideas to, to make your workplace fit you. Awesome stuff. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number two. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, finding a job, it's a, it's a hard thing, let alone, you know, making sure you have the right skills, the right, uh, the right aptitude to do it. Plus, <laughs> you, you still got to do the job. And that's the problem. I don't know that I could do a flex. Uh, well, I could. But I, in fact, I kind of do. But the, the flex, too flexible, might, might make, uh, lead you to some mistakes. There's a story about, um, well, just listen. Data entry errors are often harmless. Unless you happen to be an international pilot. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to an airplane if the pilot misentered the coordinates for where they needed the plane to go? You're yeah. going to tell us. Well, it got very interesting. According to Australia Nine's, uh, Nine News crew, um, an Air Asia flight crew learned this lesson when it attempted to fly from Sydney to Malaysia only to end up in Melbourne. It seemed the captain errantly plugged in the coordinates, uh, and they they write down the coordinates before the flight, which amounts to a difference of nearly seven thousand miles, and completely wrong continents. Just but, a bit outside the limit there. Oddly, um, normally the first officer is the one that handles the chore, but the captain went outside to do an external flight check. And uh, the captain's uh, earmuffs weren't working properly, so they switched roles. Anyway, 
when the plane uh, was taxiing on the runway, its navigation system began going a little kablooey. For instance, it was flashing terrain, terrain, terrain as it was on the runway. But the crew brushed that off. Ah, that's no big deal. It's just a little weird. Minor glitch. We'll fix that. And then they got up in the air, and the next thing they knew, they were on their way to Melbourne. Missed it by that much. The pilots requested permission to make a U-turn when they found out about the mistake to Sydney. But then the weather had turned, and they were instructed to fly to Melbourne instead. Can you imagine everybody on the airplane like, so are we in Malaysia yet? I think I'd rather go to Melbourne. I would, too. And that makes sense, because how many airplanes now from Malaysia? There's something about Malaysia. That was a subconscious problem he had. He just like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, Also, um, a little story for you about a Domino's delivery truck driver crashes while uh, doing a wheelie, showing off. The pizza delivery driver was sent sprawling across the tarmac after trying to pop a wheelie on a South London high street. Domino's Pizza has launched an investigation after footage emerged on the social media on social media um, showing that the driver toppling over um, after trying the motorcycle stunt. The video prompted on Twitter uh, a Twitter user to ask, "I wonder what state the pizzas were in." I think that's a new TV show, Domino's Pizza Special Investigators. But the guy doesn't know why he went down. But Probably you, slipped on some anchovies or something. He slipped on something. But there's something. It reminds me of old commercials with Domino's Pizza. <laughs> so the Noid, the Noid was, was on the motorcycle? The Noid is back. Wow. Knocked him right over. He shouldn't be delivering pizzas. In fact, I think his whole thing was that he was trying to uh, trying to prevent the delivery of pizzas. That's it. The Noid is a pizza preventer. He's back, folks. So be careful this weekend if you're ordering pizza. Just know the Noid is going to mess it up for you. That's hour number two of the show. We'll take a break, come back, get into the movies. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. It's happening. It's Friday. You've, you've made it. You've made it through the week. <laughs> Isn't that great? So, you know, those of you that love sports, you'll have a wonderful weekend of sports and excitement, uh, except in South Florida, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. We're praying for you. As Hurricane Matthew lumbers up the East Coast, just slowly making its way, you know, like it's grocery shopping taking the three-hour shop. Did you ever go to the store with your mom and you thought, are you kidding me? How long are we going to be here? Whenever I'd go to the grocery store with my mom, bless her heart, if I was on a different aisle and she was trying to look for me, she would just start shouting out my name, Jeffrey! (laughs) 
<laughs> Jeffrey Liam. Oh, mother. Is your middle name Liam? I didn't just say that. I think I heard Sadie. Did you heard that? Okay. Let me write that down. <laughs> That'll come in handy. Jeffrey Liam. Jeffrey. I used to have a friend that um, when we play outside, his mother was a wonderful singer, and she would go out to the front porch and sing his name. Tommy, come home. And the rest of us would be like, <laughs> why did you not clean your room? <laughs> There were micro-machines and Ninja Turtles on the floor. We had to do an opera. The joy, by the way, of parenting is you get the blessing of of embarrassing your child by singing from the front porch. It's payback, really, is what it is. (laughs) What it is is it's it's going to just create a really – a lot of problems for you down the road if we're not careful. Parenting 101. We'll get into all that fun, of course. Um, It's also the day when we talk about movies. We'll be talking with Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com. Talk about two movies coming out, um, Masterminds and Miss Peregrine. Wasn't she one of your teachers? Uh, We called her Madam Peregrine. Oh, I see. That was at that preppy... Not preppy. Elementary school preppy. that you went to. It's not preppy. We call Snobby. it special. Oh. Special. Oh, I thought. For gifted and advanced souls. Interesting. Hmm. That's what my mom said. That you're special or you're gifted? Yes. So we will talk with uh, the great uh, Rod Gustafson. Also, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We will get to a news flush, we call it, where we will get through a, a bunch of news headlines to get you caught up. And, of course, uh, wrap the whole show up with a good hero story and a big group hug and then send you on your way for the weekend. All of that ahead. But first, let's kick it all off with this, the uh, Miss, Mrs. Sadie Nielsen. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. Indian police have arrested 70 people and are questioning hundreds more after uncovering a massive scam to cheat thousands of Americans out of millions of dollars by posing as U.S. tax authorities and demanding unpaid taxes, a police officer said Thursday. According to police in Mumbai, a year-long scam involved running fake call centers which sent voicemail messages telling U.S. nationals to call back because they owed taxes. Those who called back and believed the threats would fork out thousands of dollars to settle their case. The scam brought more than $150,000 a day. If the scam netted that amount daily, it would have made almost $55 million in one year. The White Stripes are reuniting to bash Donald Trump. Five years after Jack White and Meg White parted ways, the erstwhile bandmates are lashing out against a pro-Trump video uh, with the use of their mega-hit Seven Nation Army. On Thursday, Jack White's label read, um, or sorry, label Third Man Records began advertising a new anti-Trump t-shirt. The front reads, Icky Trump, a play on the band's 2000 album and song, Icky Thump. A jury in Virginia on Thursday acquitted a white police officer who had been charged in the shooting death of a mentally ill black man holding a knife. Norfolk Police Officer Michael Eddington faced one count of voluntary manslaughter for shooting David Latham in June 2014. Outside the courtroom, the non-guilty verdict revealed the nation's stark fault lines over race and policing. Jeffrey Swartz, one of Eddington's attorneys, praised the jury for setting aside national issues and biases and showing that the criminal justice system still works. And finally, Matt... 
Yes. We have to talk about this. What? So it was previously mentioned in the BBC News, but I have to bring it up again because it is an epidemic. What? There are clowns running rampant throughout the United States. Oh, boy. Scaring children, scaring people all over the place. In fact, there is a Twitter page now called Clown Sightings <laughs> with 300,000 followers to make sure that people will know where these clowns are. Ah. Some of them are found even on trailheads where no one else is, but people just randomly walk up and suddenly there's a clown there. Um, it's been an epidemic. In fact, it's so much of an epidemic that the White House has weighed into it. Oh I, I kid you not. Oh, boy. I kid you not. This is what they said. Um, a reporter asked during a White House press briefing that the creepy clown sightings had led more than to a dozen arrests and that the local law enforcement agencies were asking for assistance from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security on how to handle the phenomenon. Mm. Um, it was quoted, Obviously, this is a situation that local law enforcement authorities quite, take quite seriously, and they should carefully and thoroughly review, you know, perceived threats to the safety of the community, and they should do so prudently, White House Press Secretary Josh Ernest said today. Um, I just want to let everyone know out there, if you see a clown, you're more than uh, able to call the cops. Oh, yeah. Did you know, I, I heard of a story, um, do you remember Dog the Bounty Hunter? Yes. Well, there's a new company that's called um, Clown Hunter. Really? And you can hire them and they will go hunt clowns. And um, it's weird because like right now here in Utah, it's deer hunting season. Right. And so you'll be driving on the freeway and some guy will have a deer like strapped to his hood. Mm. So I, I foresee a day that they're going to put a bounty on these clowns. And you're going to get, you know, five bucks a clown. I had a friend that used to get like five bucks a rabbit or five bucks a, you know, a raccoon or whatever to, you know, if you could get one because they are damaging crops and stuff. So I think they're going to have clown hunters, clown bounty hunters. Yeah, there's just some hardened clown hunter out there that's like, I got me 500 clown noses. (laughs) Well, you know, even at some universities, they're having these massive, like... A thousand people go out for clown hunts, like group clown hunts, to go find these people who are dressing up. This is to scare crazy. people. See, but it's bringing people together, though. That's, that's what clowns are in all a very about. Bizarre. Do you way. remember the story about Frankenstein? Yes. He was different. He was different. And then they started sending people and crowds to go get him. See, but these are just lonely people. That Frankenstein just... wasn't necessarily bad. These clown people—they dress up to scare people. They do it intentionally. Uh, their clowns are people too. Excuse me, it's actually Frankenstein's monster. Let's not uh, let's not uh, defame the, uh, the the doctor himself. Oh, absolutely. He was, oh, that's a great point. He was yeah. the good one. Yeah, right. So so they would hunt down Frankenstein's monster. Thank you, Doctor Frankenstein's monster. The clown. Frankenstein. The, the clown, is a, it's a big deal. I appreciate you, Sadie, bringing that up. We really need to try to get the clown hunters on the show. Yes. Be- Immediately. Because... Uh, to this, raise awareness. This isn't going away, folks. It's amazing. And I, I have a feeling some of these clowns are just clowning around. Right. But some of these clowns are... They're, they're real predator clowns. You got to distinguish the two. So yes. you, you said they've got a out. they've got a game, right? Is it is it like Pokemon Go, like Bozo Go, or something like that? Probably. Interesting. It, it's out of control. So if you see a clown, you can throw a Pikachu at him. Or... Yeah. 
a clown, a clownade, like a grenade, a clobo, a clown ball. Clobo. Yeah. I just coined that. You're welcome. Clobo. Going to make millions now. Doubt it. Uh, by the way, speaking of Pokemon Go, um, Norway's prime minister is now getting some heat because Tuesday, uh, apparently, he was caught playing Pokemon Go on Tuesday, listening to a heated debate in Norway's parliament. Nor- the prime minister of Norway playing Pokemon Go while listening to a debate in parliament. Crazy. Apparently, the game is uh, crossing Norwegian political lines. It is bringing people together. I got a Pikachu. <laughs> I don't know if that's a Norwegian accent. It's nowhere near no- Norway. Um, anyway, the, he probably won't get in trouble, but he does look, you know, pretty immature. But the guy says it was a lot more fun than listening to these uh, these deadheads argue. Matt, by the way. Could you name your favorite Pokemon character, not Pokemon, Pikachu. or Pikachu? Oh, not Pikachu. Um, yeah, I could. Just one. Just one. I just want you to name one. Bulbasaur. And his uh, earlier brother, Bulbasaurus Rex. Says the man with a computer in front of him. No. Says the man who has a producer in his ear. Thank you, Sadie. That girl knows her Pokemon. Yep, Cronut points. Ching. We um, we've got so much to get to. Did you hear about uh, this interesting story? So, <laughs> let's say you owe your mom some money, right? Hypo- this is hypothetical. This is hypothetical. Okay. You owe mom money, but you don't have the money to pay mom. Well, this happened to Daniel Stephen Bertini. He was caught on a surveillance video using a crowbar to unsuccessfully break into a teller's area at a key bank. And then he went to Bank of America 25 minutes later. And after failing there, he struck uh, Chase Bank. But at Chase Bank, he managed to snag $915 in coins. Bertini admitted that he's a drug addict and he's charged with trying to rob three banks simply so he could repay his mother the money that he stole from her. See, that's why drugs get you in trouble. And mom's now ticked. But $915 in coins. So do the coin star people kind of prey on these drug addicts? Probably. Yeah, because they got to turn it into cash. Mom's not going to let you drop $915 in coins. That's going to start a fight right there. He should just go to Mexico and uh, be the recipient of the... Oh, yeah, we talked about the, the crankerang, or what was it called? <laughs> the potterang. Potter, mm, oh, the doperang. Doperang. They're finding all these criminals are using all these devices. One's a doperang. That one's from Australia. Oh, then he That's should go to Australia. Dope. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's another fun little uh, story for you, if you're keeping score. Um, a, a man lost his, his iPhone fleeing cops online and then um he he kind of made an announcement so don't call me guys authorities say a pennsylvania drug suspect who dropped his cell phone while running away from police then took to facebook to warn his friends not to call that phone number detectives say 25 year old scranton resident james lee hankins fled from police to arrest him 
who were trying to arrest him to, for an undercover drug deal on Monday. Police say a woman who knew Hankins let them search her apartment, and they found him minutes later in her basement on a computer that had a page open to Facebook. Detectives said Hankins posted a message telling friends he'd be off Facebook for a while and asking them not to call his cell phone. Dude, don't call me. Just seriously. Don't call me. I'm not going to tell you why, but just do not call my cell phone. Mom, I'm looking at you especially. (laughs) Don't call me mom. Uh, Everybody got that? Don't call my phone. And also, uh, I'm going to be away for a while. You know, five or ten I'll, I'll be waiting like five to ten. Oh, that's sad. What's happening? And then the guy had to rob his mom to probably pay for other problems. I mean, these stories just keep, they could just totally blend together into one crazy story. And then there, again, there's, it's just life, isn't it? This is just how life works. It's, it's. Sad. One more story. Yes. To bring hope back to everybody. Do you all know that dolphins can talk? Dolphins talk. And according to researchers, dolphins have been recorded having a conversation just like two people. So... They just talk, and uh, they're actually having a real conversation just like you and me. They've known for decades that the mammals had an advanced form of communication with their clicks and their whistles, but they didn't know that they were actually carrying on a conversation between the two until a Ukrainian researcher uh, uh, from Karadag Nature Reserve found out that bottlenose dolphins were actually carrying on a conversation. And um, because of our advanced technology, which BYU Broadcasting spent a lot of money to get, we bought a translator device, which allows us to translate um, certain languages. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens they threw in a dolphin filter because we bought the the 20 languages for the price of 18. And then then we got two extra filters. We could have gotten a few more if we spent two more dollars a month. But yeah. But, you know, budget was tight. Yeah. So we've got um, – we are now going to translate the sound from the first conversation between two dolphins. By the way, very intelligent mammals. Very intelligent. Here is the translated audio from the first conversation. What are we going to leave the dear, dear, dear professor? How about that little island in the Pacific? You mean Australia? On second thought, we ought to leave him the railroad. He has such a mechanical mind, you know. Yes, but sometimes he forgets to wind it up. Hmm. Was there a laugh track? Was there was that was there a crowd? There were other dolphins. Oh, oh, the other dolphins. Yeah. Oh, so this is like a school of dolphins. Dolphins are very smart, Matt. You know. <laughs> so they so those voices sounded so familiar. I don't know where. But Do you, are you like a dolphin whisperer or something? You can hear dolphins. Yeah, I can. I can read a dolphin when when I go to like Sea World or anywhere. I when I see a dolphin, they always look at me like, you know me. You are me. You get me, bro. 
So how much did that filter cost again? I think it's a monthly fee. I think you pay so much up front and like $50 up front. No, 100 I don't remember. And then it's like $50 a month. Hmm. I just wonder if that money would be better spent elsewhere. What do you mean? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Like maybe well, maybe we, a raise for all of us or but then you wouldn't have the dol- the dolphin filter. You wouldn't have known what the dolphin were saying. All right, good point. Okay. Um we will take a break. When we come back, we're talking movies, folks. You you won't want to miss this. Two great movies coming out. Masterminds it looks like, well, maybe not so great and Miss Peregrine Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews will be talking with us. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Because it's Friday, it means it's time to do our, our movie reviews. Who better to do that than Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com. Uh, he is a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. Rodney, how are you, brother? Oh, I am reasonably good, Matt. Reasonably good. We're, I'm sorry, but we're doing movie leftovers. I know. And, and yeah. I, I, I was all excited because I had heard about masterminds from somebody close to me actually yeah. sitting across from me and so <laughs> i was excited thinking it's okay this could be a really good movie but uh i, I want your take well you know masterminds really it, it had a lot of potential now first of all this movie is made by jared hess who is of course the the brain behind napoleon dynamite right. Nacho libre uh, which are kind of turning into cult films like uh, my kids <laughs> Just a couple of weeks ago, I come into the house and I can hear Nacho Libre on in the home theater for about the um- umpteenth time. So, you know, I I was hoping that there'd be some good stuff in here. And he has some great stuff to work with because, interestingly enough, Matt, this is a crime comedy based on a true story. Now, lots of movies today are based on true stories. I see that all the time, but they're usually dramas or spy thrillers or something, but a comedy, a crime comedy, but it really is. <laughs> this movie, Masterminds, is based on a heist that happened in 1997. I hate to admit this, I remember this, which was one of the biggest, I think at the time it was the biggest or the second biggest robbery um, that that happened in the United States, uh, where these guys stole $17 million. Um, and they, the one guy drove, he was an armored car uh, driver, and that's what his job was. And he got talked into being becoming involved in this uh, in this circle of people who had this plan to rob all this money from his employer. And they indeed they did that. And as you watch Masterminds, the first thing that that crossed my mind was, I wonder how much of this is true. And I, I was surprised. Some of the major plot points are true. Like for instance, the the guy that uh, the guy that that does this that does this robbery, he heads off to Mexico with about $20,000. And by the way, his name in reality was David Gant. And he heads off to Mexico with about $20,000. It was a promise that they're going to send more money. And of course, they never do. And and the guy winds up, uh, the, the main guy in the ringleader who was actually planning all of this, he actually sends a hitman down 
to try and kill David, and this is what's going on in the movie, and and that actually was part of what hmm. happened in the in the real in the real re, in the real situation. So, and Steve Chambers and his wife, he was the guy that they were the two that were kind of the the masterminds, the main the main people that were doing this. So, as you watch this movie unfold, that was the one thing that struck me was a lot of it really did happen, but of course, a lot of it is also fictitious. And that's kind of where we get into trouble because you know there's a lot of a lot of rude content in the sexual humor and and uh, potty jokes and that type of thing. And I I read that you know they wanted to keep the movie uh, fairly clean. Some of the people that are involved in this movie um, are usually we see them more frequently in R-rated comedies, and they wanted to keep this one a little more clean, but. I still think a lot of parents are going to have a hard time with this film, mm. um, even though there are some very funny there are some very funny moments in it. The other problem with it, you know, Matt, is that in a way there's a sense that there's a, a quote near the end of the movie where this character, what he says is he's really happy he took the risk in life that he felt like it was worth taking a risk because. His life really wasn't going anywhere. He was working at this $8-an-hour job driving this armored vehicle. And uh, and this is David Gant that we're talking about now. And uh, I thought, I just don't know that most parents want their kids. It's one thing I took a risk on a business or I took a risk on an education, but I took a risk on a bank robbery. No, I, I just don't think that that's probably the message most parents are going to want their kids to take home from a movie. Right. I mean, it's got a great cast, too. It's I guess it's kind of disappointing. It yeah, it does. Zach Gillifanakis is in this. Owen Wilson, Kristen Wiig. Mm. Uh, it, it, yeah, there are some big, big names in this. And as I say, there are some very funny moments in it, too. Uh, if we could have flushed out the potty humor, I think that this could have been moving up into our B grades. That. With the way we have it, it it didn't do so well. C minus from us it's, again. You know, there's just you got the message combined with the unnecessary content, and just came off a little bit flat for mm. us. Talk to us about Miss Peregrine. So Miss Peregrine, uh, this is another movie that, and again, as I say, it's leftovers, and sometimes leftovers just don't taste as good as the fresh movies <laughs> we had last week. Right. And this one falls in that category as well. And parents, be careful of this. This looks like it should be a children's movie, but it is rated PG-13 for intense sequences of fantasy, action, violence, and peril. And, you know, I would heed that rating, even though this looks like the type of movie you could take an eight-year-old to. Uh, this is a story that, I, to put it in a nutshell, this is the X-Men meet Harry Potter. <laughs> it's a story of a group of children that have peculiar abilities. Um, and they can do all sorts of things. One of them can, fl- one can fly, and another one can uh, breathe out all of this air and, and do all sorts of wind tricks and that type of thing. And so each of them have this peculiar ability, and they live in this orphanage that was demolished during the war, and uh, they live there under the tutel- tutelage of Miss Peregrine. And uh, this is the story of a young man. Uh, his name is Jake Portman, played by Aza Butterfield, who discovers them, and then they get involved in this. And, of course, there's a bad guy, just like Magneto in the X-Men, and he has got... And he's played by Samuel L. Jackson, by the way. And he's got this team of the creepiest-looking monsters you've ever seen. I can best describe them as 
they look like big spiders with tentacles that come out of their tiny little heads. It's the <laughs> weirdest thing. And uh, frankly, Matt, if I was eight years old and I saw this movie, I'd be having nightmares. <laughs> I, I found it a little bit more, like, it's more frightening to me than the X-Men are. Uh, and certainly more frightening than I even found Harry Potter. So, parents, just be careful with this one. Make sure you're prepared for what you're getting into if you take the kids. And, of course, um, fair amount of violence in this movie. That's going to be the biggest concern. Uh, Many, many scenes of um, things getting destroyed and people in peril and uh, even people getting killed and and whatnot. Hmm. Unfortunately, profanity and sexual content, hardly anything there. So, So that's what you have. So 13 and over, possibly. 13 and under, I'm not so sure. Well, you know what? It is it is what it is, and those are great reviews. I guess when they go to their, your page, they'll be able to see the reviews and also any uh, you know any other watchouts and also discussions, discussion points as well. Absolutely. And by the way, we also have a, there's a, a new movie releasing today. It's called Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life. And no screenings for critics, in, at least in my neck of the woods hmm. on this one. So I'm, I'm heading out the door in a few minutes and we'll cool. go cover this. But you can get some of the basic uh, content information. We already, we've got the inside secrets on what's in a movie even before it releases. You can find that on our website too. Hmm. What an interesting uh, life you've got, Rod, because you just, yeah. your work is watching movies. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, so, and like, marketing. And marketing. And IT. And writing. All, and solving problems. Yeah. And then, yeah, That's and cleaning right. cleaning your house once in a while. Yes, once in a while. We understand. Rod, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Keep you up the great work. Rod Gustafson, again, from parentpreviews.com. You can also find him on Twitter, at Parent Previews. Really, go check out the site. It is a great resource. You can go back to all the old movies that you might be thinking of playing for your children uh, to make sure it's that it's clean, it's safe, it's healthy for you and your family to watch. Stick with us. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, do a little news flush next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Holy cow, because it's Friday, we like to uh, clean up um, some of our files. We have a lot of news stories that never make it to the show, but we want to get them out to you because, A, you may need them, and B, they're just funny. So we call this News Flush. We'll go around the horn. Um, Sadie's joining us. Uh, Also, Jeffrey, of course, and myself, Mavu. Here's the deal. First story. A flower... This smells like a cross between a decaying animal and urine. It's set to bloom later this week at Dartmouth College. It's named Morphe. The Titan Arum, a corpse flower it's called, hasn't bloomed since 2011. And officials at Dartmouth Life Sciences Greenhouse uh, says it's about a six and a half foot flower. It estimates that it should bloom as early as uh, last Thursday. Crowds have already been um, filling up the greenhouse, including nearly 175 on Sunday, hoping to see it bloom. As it gets closer to the unleashing of its foul odor, the flower will turn a red burgundy color, similar to meat, to attract possible pollinators. Kind of a big deal. Did you say Ron Burgundy? No, no, that was the color Burgundy. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, the smell is very overpowering. It smells like a dead corpse or feces or urine or all of them put together. All I can say to that is, ew. All I would say is get your wife one. Those are great selling points. Women love flowers. Honey, I got you the corpse flower. Okay, as the only woman in the room right now, yeah. I would just like to clear the room and say that that clear. is false. Okay, so you wouldn't want that. No, no, no. Women are so confusing. Flush it. Sadie, do you have a story? I do have a story for you. Hit it. Um, so you know who Grumpy Cat is? Uh, is that Terry? Um, it depends on the day. Okay. But yes, sometimes yeah. when he makes weird meowing noises. Grumpy too. Cat. Um, no, yeah, so, I do know Grumpy Cat. So he's the the cat who has you know big YouTube sensation now. Well, um, he is actually going to be immortalized in wax now and make a Broadway debut. Really? Yes. So Grumpy Cat, he's the most famous scowling feline. Uh, not only unveiled a waxwork of herself this weekend, but also joined the cast of Broadway musical Cats to close out the show and to add some added meow. Cats. Yeah. You know what that musical is? Yeah. Um, so she, she, I guess it's a she, I thought it was a he, uh, posed next to a wax replica of herself at Madame Tussauds Waxwork Museum in Washington, D.C. last week before snapping photos with the museum's other famous inhabitants, including former U.S. presidents Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan. Hmm. Um, she was actually interviewed and asked how she was feeling. Feline? Feline, sure. Uh, and she's, how you feeling? She was thrilled, as you can see. She was thrilled, and there's a there's a nice picture of her showing how. Oh yeah, she's thrilled so, she was. She didn't. I'm seem confused. Thrilled. How can she perform in a production of Cats if she's encased in wax? <laughs> I, let, I, let me tell you, Jeffrey. Was I not listening she, she to the story? She or? What's Jeffrey's middle name again? Uh, Jeffrey Liam. Jeffrey Liam. Let me refer to you. As Jeffrey Liam. Let me tell you. JL. So she so she was first immortalized in wax, and then she actually came on stage after the performance was finished. So she broke out of the wax. Yes. Okay. And then she came to the Broadway show Cats, very famous musical, and she made her debut. And people cheered for her. But then after she the is show, a star. No, she, she had to go back in the wax. Yes. <laughs> well... According she's, to Matthew, no. Well, she's she's just Madame Tussauds Wax Museum is just it's a bunch of they're not humans they're wax images recreations of people and cats. But I thought that was how we preserved all these celebrities once they've moved on. No, that's plastic surgery. That's different. Need to teach you wax some new versus lessons, plastic. Jeffrey, totally different. Jeffrey Liam. That's how we preserve them while they're here. Uh, okay, so flush it. That's cool. Jeffrey, do you have something to flush? Sure, yeah. Well, why don't we go with this one? So, a history professor of West Hartford, uh, Matt Warshower, uh, his Worcestershire, Worcestershire. Yeah, how do you pronounce that, by the way? Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he had a Halloween display that has become a go-to spot in Connecticut. Uh, he built an eight-foot-tall cardboard wall simulating the proposed wall along the border of Mexico. <laughs> Included in the display are models of armed guards. Uh, they have a model Donald Trump on the wall with a model Hillary Clinton sitting on a donkey. 
Wow. Uh, the animal that represents the Democratic Party, of course, included in the display is a model of Senator Bernie Sanders behind bars with the caption, jailed by the DNC, referring to the scandal that allegedly caused Sanders to lose the Democratic nomination. Hmm. I wonder how he feels about that now. Not so good. No, I wouldn't either. Well, it sounds like he needs to get encased in some wax. No, Because then no. his memory could live on forever. No, no. Well, he could still come out on occasion to to run for president yeah. or be in a production of Cats. <laughs> Whichever. Let's do one more. Flush that, by the way. One more really quickly. Women actually enjoy better mental health when their husbands, uh, when they earn more money than their husbands. Really? Yeah. So um, according to researchers, that the, the researchers, uh, what was it called? They, they shared their research at the American Sociological Association in Seattle. They surveyed 9,000 married young men and women. And apparently uh, the researchers have found that when, a, when the woman is making more money than the husband, she feels better in the marriage. She has better mental health. Um, false. That's according to Kristen Munch at the University of Connecticut. Women are more likely to be victims of domestic violence. They still perform the lion's share of housework. Our study contributes to growing body of research that demonstrates the ways in which gendered expectations are harmful for men, too. So one of the things that we have all of these expectations, and one of the expectations is that the man would always earn more than the woman. Okay. But they're finding out that women actually have better mental health when they earn more. However, the men's mental health completely destroyed. I'm glad you brought up the men because I think the men get a bad rap and they don't, uh, they don't get enough credit. What about the men in the world? Um, I give you yeah. guys all the credit all the time, just for the record. Uh, it is the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah. But that means when it's failing, it's my problem. Yes. That's, that's the credit you say you're giving me. The credit of failure. Flush it. Okay. Um, just a little information for you. We'll come back. We got more tools, more ideas, more information. This never ends. We, it will never end. There's so many stories. But when we come back, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation will be joining us. You won't want to miss it. Stick with us. Can you wash your face? I can wash my face. Can you wash your knees? <laughs> I can wash my knees. Can you wash your knees? Well, let's I go find out if the good boys hair. down at BYU Sports Nation can wash their face, their knees, and their hair. Hello, gentlemen. Are you guys there? Oh, hey, hey. hey sports. What were you guys watching? Were you watching something? No, no, oh. we were just having. Could a you hear the audio convo? from the volleyball match? I did. I could playing? hear it. Oh, okay. Hey, um, you, did you miss our song about can you yeah. wash your face? Here's here's the deal. We hear two things in our ear. Sometimes the, three. The TV feed. Sometimes. Do you really? And so we can't always hear the song. Sometimes. Well, you're gonna have to come up. Get engineering after the sh- on it. Yeah, engineering. You're gonna have to come up after the show. Here it is. The way we take a bath. It's a bath song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know why? Can you wash it's your National, National bath. bath Day. How did you know that? You guys are so smart. Same calendar. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, not to get too personal, but you two look like some guys that love to, to take 
uh, a bath at home? I don't even remember the now. Let me preface this. I know it sounds think, disgusting. I, I, I shower, but when I say I haven't taken a bath in a long time, I I, I do a bath or a yeah. Bath? I, I have not Balls. taken a bath in honestly. I don't even remember the last time I took a bath. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know either. Yeah, a bath. I it just it's weird. Like, wouldn't wouldn't it just be weird to say? So what are you doing tonight? I think I'm just gonna think I'm just gonna get a book and go take a bath. I'm gonna take a soak. Just, gonna soak. Just go soak in the tub for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds weird. I don't do that. I don't either. I, I don't even shower. Not Is that t- why they put you in a, in a mm-hmm. studio by yourself? Yeah, in close. I'm the only one in here. <laughs> they don't want anyone else in the room with me. Yeah, it's bathtub day. By the way, uh, the I guess the introduction of the bathtub was in England in 1828. An actual there, bathtub. There were no bathtubs until 1828? Apparently think. not, no. There, gotta, I mean, there were... There were pools, receptacles right? of yeah, bathness, of, yeah, dirty fluid, and you just would jump in and clean. Until eighteen twenty-eight, what it says. I don't believe. Well, I mean, no way. There, like BC was when a we see, like yeah, Roman. You know, like, yeah, but those were those. Don't let Wiki but tell that, you what's up. Those were like those were pools, right? Those were those weren't a bath is essentially a small pool. Very, very, yeah, very small pool. A personalized pool. Right. Yes, it's a pool for one. Um, did you guys ever, did you, do you have any fond memories as a child when mom would say, let's take a bath, and you'd, she'd go in and get, set your water, and did you have fun in the tub? Was bathing time fun? I remember it being fun. I my, did, too. My daughter's not a huge fan of it. I loved it. I don't understand. I, I don't really remember that. I used to mix drinks. What? I know. I would because I had side convo. I had three sisters and they all had different shampoos. And then I would get a cup and I'd pour a little shampoo from each one of theirs and pretend like it's a drink. And then I'd serve it to people. And that's why you have pink hair. Oh, here's this just came to me. I do remember this was back. I was I was little. We were this was back when I lived in in Missouri. You were 16, 17. I'm assuming I was probably like eight or nine. Yeah, this is eight years ago. (laughs) No. So what was different was we had a towel rack Uh inside the shower bathtub area. It was it was a Mm. combination. And so I was small enough that I could like do kind of like a pull up on it and then (laughs) and and like put like essentially sit on the wall and then slide down holding on. I remember one time I finally did it and it broke. And I fell and oh. hurt myself in the tub. Oh, oh, no. I had not thought of that for years. Yeah, and talking see? about tubs brought it back. See that? Did you ever let all the water drain out and then squish back and forth because you were all slicked up? Every morning. <laughs> I did it this morning. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of weird that we're talking about bathtubs. Uh, so I had to decide <laughs> bathtubs or clowns, and I decided we'll go with bathtubs today. Yeah, that's a safe pick. Oh, Really? <laughs> Safe. It's always safe to go bathtub. Hey, um, yeah. what, what, what are you guys doing on your show? You're still going to do a show, right? Yeah, we're going to do the show today. Spencer's gone, obviously. Uh, he's on his way to East Lansing. He's literally uh, in the air as we speak, mm. one minute into that flight. Um, so that's, uh, that's going to be uh, fun today because tomorrow is game day for BYU at Michigan State. What do you expect in the game? We'll talk to ESPN's Mike Patrick, who is play-by-play tomorrow. Uh, on ESPN2 and or ABC, as well as Brady Papinga, who's a former BYU linebacker, played in the NFL. Now he's a national broadcaster on uh, the radio, has his own video podcast. He'll, uh, he'll hang with us as well. Yeah, we're also going to do, uh, since it's Friday before the, the football game, a, a new segment that was started this season, Going for Two, 
and, and I'm really excited about this because I usually play the home version. Uh, and now that I'm here <laughs> on the set today, actually, uh, people actually get to hear my going for twos. Yeah. That normally just myself yeah. gets to hear. And, and Spencer, Spencer made picks as well, um, but his were the weakest he's brought <laughs> all season. They were not awesome. You're dissing him. Well, they're not tough. But they're just, oh, they were like the ones I did. Like, they, they, yeah, exactly. they'd play on a field. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't that easy, but it was close. Boy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hammer his picks on the show today. Hammer time! Yeah. Are you wearing big, puffy parachute pants? I wish. Always. Does anyone else get depressed when you see the MC Hammer commercials for, like, the Post-it notes? Yes. What happened to that <laughs> like, guy? Honestly, like, 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 that was MC Hammer. He was the bomb. He was loaded. His pants could take 30,000-foot jump. I mean, I guess at least he, you know, people are, are still wanting to pay him to be MC Hammer, but I just get a little depressed. I do see. That he's doing, like, Post-it note commercials now. Yeah, that's just what life well, ends up being. At least he's not doing pull-ups in the bathtub. It just, get, just gets worse. Wow, I'd forgotten. I had repressed that memory. I know. The neat thing <laughs> about that. I hurt bad in that, too. Well, the neat thing about you sharing that is now it's, it's a memory for all of us. <laughs> yeah, now everyone can, <laughs> can, can think of me falling on my back in the tub. Mom, Ow. Mom, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> you fell in the, the tub. Wind, <laughs> that, the is such, that is such an old... God, are you sure you weren't really old when you did that? No, I was like eight or nine. <laughs> You're supposed to... Yeah, eight or nine's probably big to be doing chin-ups <laughs> on your towel rack. It was a precursor to my workout days. It's yeah. really what got me into that's it. That's what got me going, man. That's where you started getting milk ripped. as an eight-year-old. I was ready to rock. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Like I'll let you go. I know you got to go, you know, do your chin-ups. Hey, we're ready to run <laughs> on your towel right rack. Now. We just kind of sit here and yeah. look around for okay. five minutes. But go go hammer out about twenty push-ups. That always pumps me up right before the show. That's what I do. That's a good idea. Actually. Yeah, do a great it. idea. Go yeah. do it right now. Some crunches too. It might be hard for Jason to pump those out, but with the bad <laughs> shoulder. Really. Have you seen this guy? <laughs> yeah, with the bad shoulder from his. Although his earlier childhood he was accident. like, "Oh my ab, tightened up." I, I did. I had an ab muscle when I bent over that tightened up, and it really hurt. I'd give 50 bucks to have an ab muscle. <laughs> that much, huh? Yeah, 50 whole bucks. Okay, guys, have a great show. We'll see, see ya. Nugum did. Oh, yeah. It, it, we joke about Jason, but Jason is in the best shape of any human on Earth. Seriously. I am the healthiest human ever known to man. Uh, good point. Second best shape of any human on Earth. Really. Jason is, he really is ripped. So when he pulls an ab, he literally pulled one ab because he was probably working on one ab. You know? I, if I ever were to work my abs, I, I usually only do it like trying to get out of bed. <laughs> but Jason like sculpts his abs. Is, is it a water bed or something? No. Because those are hard to get out of. No, it's actually a regular bed that just... It's just I got to get some momentum, you know. You got to get your body moving. So you kick one leg up and you kind of rock for about – I like to rock back and forth about 15 times. So you have – And then I give a big grunt and then I'm out. So you have a waterbed then? No, no, not waterbed. Because that would cause – that's probably where yeah. the rocking is coming in. No, the rocking's just coming from I need to create momentum. Sadie's probably in there thinking waterbed? What's yeah. a waterbed? She probably's never even heard of a waterbed. These kids nowadays, they don't even know that you can drown while sleeping in your bedroom.
Hey, as uh, we wrap up, we like to tell a fun story on the way out. Um, a, a wedding ring lost at sea 35, no, 37 years ago was returned to its owner. A gold wedding ring lost more than 37 years ago has been found by a scuba diver in the waters off of Spain's eastern coastal city of Benidorm last month. And Wait. it began a social media search. Wait a minute. Was this the ring? Isn't this the jewelry that was thrown off the Titanic? No, no. Oh, no. Something, this, this is different. I guess 37 years. Yeah. Titanic was uh, quite a bit longer. Yeah. Okay. A diving instructor, Jessica Cuesta, gave the ring back to Augustin Aliaga Monday at his bar in a village near the northeastern city of Zaragoza. After finding the ring last month, Cuesta posted a photo of it on Facebook and gave it a date inscribed on it, February 17, 1979. She asked people to share the post, and more than 80,000 people did, with the word finally reaching Aliaga and his wife, Juani Sanchez. Aliaga said he lost it while swimming several months after marrying his wife. How cool is that? Isn't that neat? Found the ring 37 years later. My wife is still mad that I lost my wedding ring. Did you throw it off a ship? Nope. I don't know where it went. I think it didn't fit right, and then I was probably waving to someone, and it flew off my finger. As you know, we like to wrap up the show with a hero story. This hero story comes out of Meridian, Idaho. An 11-year-old Idaho pug credited with saving his family from a fire is making history as the first non-human recipient of the local hometown hero award. Jackson is his name, a pug credited with saving his owner, Michaela Seabree, and her family by alerting them to a sparking um, electric outlet that was rapidly turning into flames, was honored during the ceremony at Meridian City Hall with a bestowal of the Hometown Hero Award. The city shared photos of the ceremony on its official Facebook page. Certainly his actions and the actions of this dog saved that house Uh, from potentially igniting and catching on fire and going up into the walls and up into the attics and causing significant damage, said the Meridian Fire Chief Mark Niemeyer. Jackson was also presented with a probationary firefighter badge for his heroic actions, and uh, he Jackson is definitely a super pug. He deserves the hometown hero. He saved our house, our lives. He saved our memories, according to the family member, Todd Lavoie. So, Jackson the pub, the pug, you little stud, you. Congratulations. You are the hero of the day. Folks, uh, that's the show, and that's the week. So, it's time to go home. Make it a great one. Let's look after each other. Let's be there for each other. And uh, if you want more from the show, go back to all of our old. Uh, we've done so much work this week. Come on. Go to iTunes, to Stitcher, go to byuradio.org, go to the Matt Townsend Show.com. So many places to get the information you need. And remember, life is good. You just got to be willing to see it. Until Monday, make it a great one. We'll talk again Monday.